Hello, welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're going over UFC Fight Night Home vs. Vieira coming up on Saturday the 21st of May with a 4 p.m. Eastern start time. This event's being held in Las Vegas at the UFC Apex Arena. There'll be 11 total bouts on the card. Of course, no championships on the line, but some good fights. The main event's going to be featuring Holly Holm versus Caitlin Vieira, and the co-main event's going to be Michelle Pereira going against Santiago Ponzinibbio. We've got some heavyweight bouts on the card, a few female fights. It's not championships on the line, and it's not the big time names, but it's something, and I'm grateful that UFC has so many events throughout the course of the year for the hardcore ma fans we love it no complaining we'll go over each fight one fight at a time we'll start the prelims work our way all the way through the main card we do a deep dive in the main card and for one or two fights in the prelim card but most of the prelim is going to be a very brief overview of the fights no deep dive no background of the fighters we just didn't have time for that this week but we'll give you at least our picks to win we'll talk about some of the prop bets with that said let's jump into it guys here we go <laughs> All right, the card opens up with a women's bout in the strawweight division at 115 pounds between two American fighters, Sam, Sam Page Hughes, who's 6-4 and four overall, versus Elise Reed. Elise Reed is 5-1 overall, 4-1 her last five fights, a slight favorite here at minus 150 on the money line. She's based out of Princeton, New Jersey, 29 years old, 5-3 in high with a 63-inch reach. She's out of Kickside Martial Arts. As for Sam Hughes, who's 6-4 and four overall, 2-3 and three in her last five fights, a slight dog here, plus 130 in money line. She's out of Everett, Washington. She's about to turn 30 years old, 5-5 five five in high with a 64 and a half inch reach. She trains out of Catalyst MMA. So height and reach, they're very similar with a slight height and reach advantage for Sam Hughes, and they're both about the same age at 29 years old. At first glance, a lot of similarities with these two fighters. Now looking at the public votes and topology, Elise Reed is a huge favorite. To my surprise, 81% of the votes coming in are for Reed, only 19% coming in for Sam Page Hughes. I thought Hughes had more fans than this, so I'm a little surprised. And for Elise Reed, she did win her last fight by split decision over McKenna. I thought she possibly lost that fight. That was my opinion. Then again, I was also betting on the other side, so I was hoping that my fighter would win. Now that was her second UFC fight and her first UFC win. Her first UFC fight was a whooping by Sajara Eubanks. She lost round one via ground and pound and left that octagon with a huge eye. Her eye was completely closed, tons of bruising. And Sajara Eubanks, for what it's worth, she has her moments. She's a very good wrestler. She came in there and took advantage of Elise Reed in her UFC debut. Now, looking at Elise Reed's background, it's fairly impressive. She had a win in Bellator in her opening pro X martial arts fight. She went 3-0 and in CFFC, and she lost her UFC debut against Sajara Eubanks. Came back with a bounce back win against Corey McKenna. She also had a decent amateur career with a 7-1 record. So overall, Elise Reed checks out a pretty good overall fighter. But here's my concern with this. When you look at Sam Hughes on the other side, she's fought some better competition. She's fought people like Tisha Torres, Vanessa Demopoulos, Luma Lukbume, Luana Pinero. Now, I know I'm reaching there. Some of these names are not the top, top of the division, but they're definitely better than who Elise Reed has fought against. And her last fight, Sam Hughes, was an underdog against Estella Nunez. She won by majority decision. So she kind of won by the skin of her teeth the same way Elise Reed won by some decision as well. Needless to say, she was a slight dog and she won the fight. I feel like coming into this fight, there's a similar circumstance where she's a slight dog again. She has some experience. People kind of look past her. She has a size advantage. Can she do some grappling like she did against Nunez? Both fighters also fought earlier this year, so they're very active. This will be their second fight of 2022. In some ways, I'm a little biased, and I'm biased on the side of Elise Reed. Princeton, New Jersey is only about a stone's throw from where we're at over here in Newtown, Pennsylvania, so literally 20 minutes, 15 minutes away. I should be rooting for the hometown person, and I did root against her in the past. So, for example, the Corey McKenna fight, I chose McKenna, and she lost. Eubanks fight, I chose Eubanks, but that was everyone was on Eubanks that fight. So who do I choose for this fight? I have a sneaking suspicion that Sam Hughes comes through. I like her as a dog in this spot. And if you're going to bet this fight, think about it. It's a women's fight. 
We don't know a lot about Lise Reed yet. She's still kind of making her way in the UFC. Yes, coming off of a split decision win, but we don't know a lot about her. Now she's all of a sudden a favorite at minus 55. I think Sam Hughes has more than a shot to win here. And at plus 135, if you're going to bet the fight on the money line, there's more value there. The props that I like for this fight, the one I like the most is the fight going the distance at minus 300. They are evenly matched size-wise, age-wise, experience-wise. They're very similar. I don't think either fighter here has a big advantage on any part of their fight game. So at minus 300, yes, it's a bit chalky, but that might be a parlay piece instead of trying to choose a side to parlay on the money line. The two other props to consider are Lee's Reed to win by decision, which is plus 100, or Sam Hughes to win by decision at plus 215. That's even better than the money line. I do like Sam Hughes. I think she could very well win the fight and get some position control on the ground, use some of her size as an advantage, use some of her experience. She's fought a few more fights than Elise Reed. Bottom line is this. I think Elise Reed can win the fight. <laughs> I think Sam Hughes can also win the fight, but I'm going to choose Sam Hughes as a dog here to start the card off with a nice win by decision. All right, next fight in the car is going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between the American fighter Chase Hooper scoring off against the Brazilian fighter Felipe Colares. Colares is 10-3 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. Slight favor here at minus 160 in the money line. He hails out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 28 years old, 5'8 in height with a 69.5 inch reach. He trains out of Team Nogueira, which is a very good gym down in Brazil. As for Chase Hooper, who goes by the dream, he's 10-2-1 overall, so has 13 total fights just like his opponent. He's 3-2 in his last five fights. He's a slight dog here, plus 150 in the money line. He's from Washington State. He's 22 years old, 6'1 in height with a 75.5 inch reach. He trains out of combat, sport, and fitness. As for the public votes on Tapology, Hooper is the slight favorite, and 60% of the votes compared to 40% for Hilaris. I like Hooper. I think he's got a ton of potential. He is very young still, maybe a little too young to be in the UFC at this point in his career. He is the definition of one-dimensional. If he cannot get a submission or get to a grappling sort of scenario in the fight, then he has no other path to victory. On the feet, he is a very hittable target. His stand-up defense is not very good. His chin's very high, and his striking output is nil. There's just not much there, not much power in the hands. Now, the one caveat here is that he has been out for almost a year. Last time he fought was last June. Had a grappling bout in between that time where he lost a grappling bout to Mociano, but uh, no, whatever, whatever, just a grappling bout. But the point is, hasn't fought in an MA bout since June of last year. Maybe that year could have helped him put on some muscle, square up some of his boxing issues. But you're hoping, you're just, you know, you're not sure of that. You're assuming he's making some adjustments. You're assuming he's making some improvements. In the case of Kolaris, he's not a world beater by any means, but he's a decent level fighter. He's definitely better on the feet. And again, with Hooper, he is just so damn one-dimensional. Looking at the striking stats in these two fighters, Chase Hooper is laying 3.87 per minute, absorbing 3.79. So not a terrible amount of volume, but as you can see from the ratio, he's just barely in a positive ratio for striking numbers. For Kolaris, landing 2.27 per minute, absorbing 4.65. So when it comes to striking stats, actually Chase Hooper has the better numbers. For takedown offense, Hooper's landing 0.96 takedowns per 15 minutes, so just about one takedown per fight. For Kolaris, landing 1.8 takedowns per 15 minutes. For takedown defense, 50% for Hooper and 43% for Kolaris. Now for takedown defense, it should be noted that for Hooper, he doesn't mind just pulling guard, giving up a takedown to get to the ground. For him, doesn't care about his takedown defense. Now for takedown accuracy, a number I usually don't talk about, but I have to mention it here. He's got 18% takedown accuracy. That's Hooper. So when he tries to get the fight to the ground, he's not very good at that. Now, he wants to get to the ground. He needs to be on the ground. 
but he's not very good at getting the fight to the ground. If Kolaris can simply use some decent tactics to stay on his feet for two of the three rounds, he can get a win here in the scorecards. But if you're betting on Felipe Kolaris and the fight goes to the ground even just for 30 seconds, you're going to be shitting yourself because Chase Hooper will be chasing submissions. He doesn't care about giving up position. He's very good at submission defense himself. Reality is that's his wheelhouse. I would like to support the American fighter here. I like Chase Hooper. I think he's a very young, good prospect. But the problem is, again, until I see him actually see in a fight where he's using his hands better, improves his ability to fight on his feet more than what I've seen in the past, then I just simply cannot back him. Now, do I think the UFC is giving him an opponent here that he could beat? Yes. Do I think the UFC wants him to win? Yes. Are they giving him a guy that he should beat? Yes. But Kolaris is no slouch. And what we've seen from Chase Hooper has not been enough. I think Chase Hooper is a live dog in this spot. I do want to mention that at plus 155, that's not a bad spot. Now, the props are the ones I want to talk more about. The sub prop at plus 500 for Chase Hooper to win by submission. You got to sprinkle that prop. The reality is if Chase Hooper wins the fight, it's most likely by submission. It's not going to be because of volume and striking stats and winning the scorecards or winning because of position control. He'll give up position control. He'll lose the striking stats. But if he does get a win here, it's by submission. That's his path to victory. So plus 500, I like that spot if you're betting on Chase Hooper. For Kolaris, I like him by decision at plus 150, a slight better value than the minus 180 money line. And then the fight going the distance at minus 135, you know, that's about a pick em spot. And I think the reason is because the bookies know there's a good chance Chase Hooper can finish the fight by submission. I don't think Kolaris knocks out Hooper. I don't think Kolaris gets a submission over Hooper. But the chance to finish the fight, that sits in the side of Chase Hooper, and that could be by submission at plus 500. Might want to check that spot out. Anyway, that's the breakdown for this fight, guys. I think the 22-year-old Hooper is just still too young and hasn't made the improvements that I like to see for him to get in here and get a win with confidence. I do acknowledge, though, that he's a live dog in this spot. At minus 180 for Felipe Kolaris, I will not be betting him straight up. I will not be parlaying this either. I will choose Felipe Kolaris to put into my lottery parlay, and I'll take a stab at that submission prop at plus 500 for Chase Hooper. Otherwise, I won't have much action in this fight. Next up, we have a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between two American fighters, Jonathan Dragon Martinez versus Vince Morales, who goes by Vendetta. Vendetta is 11-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 170 in the money line. He hails out of Ontario, Oregon. 31 years old, 5'7 in height with a 68-inch reach. He's out of American Free Fight MMA. As for Mr. Martinez, he's 15-4 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He's a favorite here in the money line at minus 200. He's out of Plainview, Texas, 28 years old, 5'8 in height to 1 inch taller with a 69.5-inch reach, about a 1.5-inch reach advantage for Martinez. He trains out of different breed MMA. As for the public votes coming in on Tapology, Martinez is the big favorite, getting 85% of the votes, only 15% coming in from Morales. I gotta say, Vince Morales is getting just disrespected here. The guy is a pretty good fighter, has fought some decent competition, has come up short, yes, but has fought some good competition. This fight, to me, is a little bit more like a pick'em. I think the money line's off. I like Martinez to win the fight, yes, but I think the fight is a little closer than what the money line suggests. Now, looking at the stats first in these two fighters, Martinez is landing 4.58 per minute, absorbing 3.82, so decent volume and a positive ratio. As for Vince Morales, landing 4.62, very similar output, and absorbing 4.25, so positive ratio, just not as positive as Martinez. As for takedown offense, 0. 0.37 takedowns per fight for Martinez and 0.19 for Morales. What does that tell us? No takedowns will be happening in this fight. This fight will be on the feet the entire time. As for takedown defense, 73% for Martinez and 50% for Morales. Again, shouldn't be a factor. 
Martinez comes into this fight on a two-fight winning streak with wins over Lashvili and Perez. His last loss was against Davy Grant last year. Round two overhand left, got knocked out, but Davy Grant has got some power in his hands, just came off a finish win recently. He also has wins in the UFC over Thomas Almeida and Frankie Cienza with losses against guys like Andre Ewell and Davy Grant. I think that Jonathan Martinez is still growing, getting better as a fighter, has not had any big embarrassing losses. The knockout loss of Davy Grant was a bit of a wake-up call, but still, Martinez is still growing as a fighter, learning. So I look at those losses as opportunities for him to get better. As for Vince Morales, coming into this fight off of wins against Luis Smolka and Draco Rodriguez with losses against Chris Gutierrez, Benito Lopez, and Yudong Song, has also fought some decent level competition and coming in here on a two-fight winning streak. This fight, to me, again, is very evenly matched. It's going to be on the feet. I think Martinez is the slightly better striker, which makes him the slight favorite in my eyes. But this fight should be close, and it may come down to just simply how a judge sees one round or two. And Vince Morales is coming in here as a tough cookie on a two-fight winning streak, looking to go to three wins in a row. It's not easy to get out of there. Only been finished twice in his career, one time by submission, and then the fight against Chris Gutierrez where he gets his legs gets kicked out from underneath of him. Otherwise, pretty durable fighter. And in the case of Martinez, also very durable. He's only been finished one time in his career. That was against Davy Grant last year. Now, how am I going to bet this fight? Then there's a big possibility this fight goes the distance. So the prop I like the most of this fight is a fight going the distance at minus 195. The second prop that's attractive to me would be the fight starting round two. Good matchup overall. It's a great fight for the prelim card. It should be a dogfight to the very end. I do not see a finish, though. I see Jonathan Martinez outstriking Vince Morales, having the nicer, sharper punches, maybe digging him once or twice over the course of those three rounds, but edging him out in the scorecards for decision wins for Jonathan Martinez. Next fight in the card's gonna be a lightweight clash at 155 pounds between Omar Morales from Venezuela and Uros Medic from Serbia via now Alaska. Mr. Medic goes by the doctor. He's seven and one overall, four won his last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 130 in the money line. 29 years old, six foot one in height with a 71 inch reach. He's out of Anchorage, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. As for Mr. Morales, who goes by the Venezuelan fighter, he's 11 and two overall, three and two in his last five fights. He's now based out of Florida, 36 years old, five foot 11 in height with a 74 inch reach. He's out of Hard Knocks 365. As for the public votes on Tapology, is the favorite, getting 64% of the votes, 36% of the votes coming in for Morales. I like Morales to win the fight. I think Medich is a good fighter, but I think Morales will out-edge him here on the scorecards for a decision victory. Now, based upon the betting numbers, it suggests to you the fight probably does not go the distance. It's like minus 250 for the fight not going to decision. But I think Morales is a tough guy to hit at times. He has good circling defense. Medich will try to go forward. We'll try to do some grappling. We'll try to initiate the clinch at some point. But Morales is a survivor. Now, he is coming off of a loss where he got finished. I understand that, and so is Medich. But these guys are pretty evenly matched, and to me, it suggests the fight probably goes to decision. As for the striking numbers in these two fighters, Morales is landing 3.4 per minute, absorbing 2.83. For Medich, landing 10.53, absorbing 3.42. So tons of volume there for Medich. As for takedown offense, 0.60 for Morales and 0.00 for Medich. The fight should be on the feet for most of the entire three rounds. For takedown defense, 66% for Medich and 63% for Morales. Both guys are coming off of losses where they were finished in round one and round two. In the case of Yudas Medic, he ran into a really good prospect, Jalen Turner, who looks like to be the real deal. He gets finished in round one via rear naked choke. Now, it wasn't really the choke that was the problem. He got pieced up on the feet. He got hurt. He got hurt by a body shot. He eventually goes to the ground, and he gets finished by a rear naked choke. It was more like a mercy choke. He falls to one and one in the UFC. Yudas Medic came into the UFC 2020 via the Dana White Contender Series with a win over Mickey Gonzalez. All of his wins by finish, and usually in round one. The longest he's been is to round two. So that's his technique. Push, pressure, pace, overwhelm his opponent. In the case of this matchup here against Omar Morales, Morales has got some experience. He's been there with some pretty good fighters. He knows how to circle away from the danger. It's going to be tough for me to see a world where Yuris Medich gets a finish in round one over a really good, savvy fighter like Omar Morales. 
Ash Morales coming off a loss himself where he lost last year via rear naked choke. Same method of failure for him as it was for Medich. He loses to Jonathan Pierce, who overwhelmed him with grappling, took him to the ground, and eventually forces him to tap out. For Morales, he falls to 3-2 in his overall record in the UFC. Does have a decision loss against Giga Chikaze where he went the full distance. That's kind of aging pretty well. Has a win over Gabriel Benitez and a win over Shane Young. Hasn't really had a signature win yet. Giga Chikaze would have been that signature win. When you look at Omar Morales' fight, the one big annoying factor for him is the volume. It's like you want him to let his hands go at times. Like, come on, dude. Go for it. In the case of the fight against Jonathan Pierce, he doesn't get a chance to let his hands go, and he also gets mushed up against the fence, gets taken down, and he doesn't show great grappling. Obviously, does not show good grappling defense, gets submitted. But on the feet, I wish this guy would let his hands go. He's kind of big for this weight class, drops a lot of weight, but he needs to use his hands and needs to let his hands go. I think this fight goes to round two. The spot I like the most in this fight is the fight starting round two, which is minus 250 currently. I just don't see that Medich ends the fight in round one. And granted, it's in his pedigree. He's done it before. But I believe Morales does enough to get the fight to round two. Now, on the money line, Morales is minus 140. Medich is plus 120. And it's justified to be a pick'em. At 36 years old, you forget Morales is the older fighter here and much older by seven years. I don't believe Father Time is catching up to him yet, but he needs to adjust his strategy at times and needs to have more volume. Medich is landing 10.5 strikes per minute, tons of volume. Now, will that be the same volume in round three? Not so sure. Medich by a finish is plus 200. It seems to me like the books are hip to the fact that he may get a finish in this fight, but I just don't see that. I think that's recency bias. He got finished in his last fight, of course. All his prior wins were by finish himself. Morales got finished in his last fight. So people would think this fight's going to be a finish, right? No, I think these guys are evenly matched. To me, the fight goes a distance at plus 180 is a good spot to consider. But who wins the fight? I think Morales wins the fight. I think he's got enough veteran savvy. Only a few more fights in the cage, but seven years older. He's been on planet Earth a little bit longer. He fights a pretty good overall style, a safe style. He's not much of a brawler, which is the style of Medich, but I believe he has enough technique to ward off Euros Medich, at least for the first round. Get to round two at minus 250. The fight starts round two. That's my favorite spot in this fight. That's the breakdown, guys. Let's move on to the next fight. Next up, we have a heavy clash between the American Parker Porter versus the Brazilian Jolton Almeida. Almeida is the biggest favorite in the card at around minus 600 the money line, and this one is a fight you want to stay far away from. If anything, I would sprinkle the underdog. And yes, I'm saying sprinkle the underdog. I do think Jolton Almeida wins the fight, but, and there's a few buts there, there are some paths to victory for Parker Porter. And Almeida, who's really a 205-pounder, a light heavyweight, not really a heavyweight, is moving up to fight heavyweight against a guy who is fully heavyweight. Parker Porter goes in usually around 263 ish 265 on the scales. So a huge weight disparity here, which I just do not like. Anyway, the basics in these two fighters, Almeida is 15-2 overall, 5-0 in his last five fights, a huge favorite again at minus 600 on the money line. He's from Salvador, Brazil, 30 years old in 10 months, so about to be 31. He's an alum of Dana White Contender Series. He won last year and earned his contract. Six Six foot three and high with a 79 inch reach. He's out of LG system. As for Mr. Parker Porter, 13 and six overall, four won his last five fights. A big underdog around plus 500 the money line. He's out of New Britain, Connecticut, 37 years old, so about seven years older than his opponent. Six foot in height, about three inches shorter, with a 75 inch reach, so a four inch reach advantage there as well for Almeida. And for Parker Porter, he trains out of underdog mixed martial arts. As for the public votes, they're coming in on the side of Almeida. It makes sense. 90% of the votes coming in for Almeida, only 10% for Porter. I do want to be clear. I think Almeida wins the fight. He's the better athlete. But man, the size issue is a big one. I mean, think about this. Porter comes in around 265, right? The limit. You got a guy in Almeida who came in at 203 in his last two fights. I believe he weighed in under the 205 limit. That's like a 50-pound difference. If for some reason, even if it's by luck, Parker Porter falls on top of Almeida, it's going to be so hard for Almeida to get up underneath that big body. Now, Almeida is a very good athlete and looked very good so far in the recent fights against low-level competition, of course. 
But there is a way here for Parker Porter to make it ugly. Almeida has that physique, that, you know, God physique, that Greek God, like chiseled from stone. Those guys tend to get tired. So what if, crazy what if, if round two or three comes around, Parker does get top control and Almeida is tired and just fatigued. I mean, you could see that dynamic happening. Now, in the most normal circumstances, Almeida will probably overtake him. His athleticism will probably win the day. But I believe there's a chance here for the underdog to win the fight. And with plus 400 money, plus 500 money, you got to take a sprinkle at that. Porter, by decision, I believe, is plus 1,600. Almeida is an active grappler. He fights a lot of grappling bouts, and he's a very active fighter in general. He's already fought two grappling bouts this year, and this will be his second mixed martial arts fight. So you like the fact that he's very active for a 30-year-old fighter. He just hasn't fought good competition. His toughest opponent to date was Nasiruddin Nasiruddinov. Now it's contender series matchup, where he just completely outpowered Nasiruddinov. Nasiruddinov is a decent prospect, but couldn't match the power, the actual physical strength of Jalen Almeida. You see Almeida just run through him. Danel Marquez, he picks up Marquez and slams Marquez to the ground. I can assure you he's not picking up Parker Porter. Now, could he get a leg sweep? Can he, you know, thread his leg around one of his legs and trip him and take him down and sort of maybe wear down Parker Porter? Yeah, of course, that's a possibility. But even in that process of taking him down, he risks that what if he loses his balance and Porter falls on top of him? And it's like, oh my gosh, the worst case scenario. As for Porter, he's coming in here on a three-fight winning streak against Josh Parisian, Chase Sherman, and Alan Badu. And his best competition was Chris Dalkus, who he lost to in 2020 by a round one TKO. Chris Dalkus has fought a few fights the last few years. We're starting to see what he's made of. He's a good contender, like a top 10 to 15 contender. But that seems to be maybe his ceiling. When they squared off against him and Parker Porter, he beat Parker Porter by a round one TKO. So it gives you an idea of where Parker Porter's at. Again, nice three-fight winning streak, but against guys like Chase Sherman, Josh Parisian, Alan Bardo, not really the elite guys of this weight class. Almeida probably wins the fight, but from a betting standpoint, I am not going to parlay Almeida into any of my stuff. Not worth it at minus 600. Once you get over minus 300, minus 400 at that point, there's just not a lot of value. Now, Almeida by a finish of any kind is minus 225. That means the bookies, they're hep to what's going on. That's the most likely path to victory for Almeida. But again, even that's a little bit chalky, right? And what if the fight somehow goes to decision? We've seen some fights recently. Look at that Burns versus Chamaya fight, which never should have gone a distance, and somehow it did. So this fight here, could it find some weird way to go to decision? And then could we find a way that Parker Porter has won two rounds or made it close? So the two props I like here are the finish for Almeida at minus 25 and the fight going to decision for Parker Porter at plus 1600. You heard it here first. Take a look at that prop. That's not a bad spot to be in. That's more or less the breakdown, guys. There's not much more to talk about. Almeida should win the fight. I'll be watching closely. It's going to be a heavyweight clash, but there are some factors here. Again, Almeida coming up in weight, giving up almost 50 pounds to a very big guy. It's just not a good dynamic. He should win. We've done a lot of these breakdowns in the past where guys should win and they don't. So I like Parker Porter as a dogger pass here. I'm choosing Almeida to win the fight, but I'll be betting a little bit on Parker Porter. The last fight in the prelim card is going to be a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Joseph Ugly Man Holmes and Alan Amadovsky. Almodovsky's 8-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog on the money line at plus 165. He's out of North Macedonia, now based out of Italy, 34 years old, 5'10 in height with a 74-inch reach. He trains out of American top team in Rome. As for the ugly man, he's 7-2 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. A favorite on the money line at minus 200. He's based out of Texas, 26 years old in 10 months, so about to be 27. 6 feet 4 in height with an 80-inch reach. He's going to have about a 6-inch height advantage and roughly a 6-inch reach advantage, which will be a notable advantage for him when they're on the feet striking. And he trains out of Glory MMA Fitness with Coach James Krause.
Now, looking at the numbers on Tapology, the public votes are coming in on the side of Holmes, 86% to be exact, only 14% coming in for Amadowski. I do have to agree with the public here. This fight's one of the more confident picks I have in the card. I do think Holmes has Amadowski beat almost everywhere, and then you got the three-year layoff for Amadowski as well, so all the arrows are pointing towards Holmes. We're going to break this down and try to convince you of that. Um, the money line at minus 200 is a little chalky, but it's not that bad. Could be a parlay piece. Now, let's look at the striking numbers in these two fighters. For Holmes, landing 2.77 per Minute, absorbing 2.99 not a good ratio number one the volume's not very good only 2.77 per minute you would think that Holmes would have a little more output just because of the way he fights he's more of a stand-up striker but thus far no not very high volume as for Alan Madoski he's like you know what you can hold my beer here dude I'm only averaging 0.5 two strikes per minute yes 0.52 absorbing 3.14 so also has a negative ratio but like one of the most negative striking ratios i've ever seen and when you watch him fight it makes sense he looks for some takedowns looks to try to grapple not very good at it then stands in the feet for minutes on end not throwing much of anything then gets taken down and spends minutes on end on his back doing no kind of striking ultimately it's just a recipe for disaster when he's trying to win on the scorecards as for the takedown offense joseph holmes is averaging 1.32 takedowns per 15 minutes with a 60% takedown defense. For Alan Amadovsky, averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. So I did mention that he likes to try to grapple and get takedowns, but doesn't seem to be very good at it. On the opposite side, he has 0% takedown defense. And in fact, yes, it's 0%. He's been taken down multiple times in all of his fights thus far in the UFC. Now looking at the background of Joseph Holmes, his family moved around a lot when he was a kid. He lived in Texas, Alabama, and Georgia. He eventually set some roots in Texas where he was a standout high school football player. He received multiple scholarship offers to go off to college for football. He signed a full scholarship offer to Arkansas Tech. He redshirted his freshman year, but still on scholarship. Ended up hanging around with too many of the wrong people. He ends up losing his scholarship, unfortunately. He has to go back home. His family cannot afford for him to stay at school. He starts working normal jobs, starts working for UPS, and happens to come across a co-worker who had a shirt on from a local mixed martial arts gym and the rest is history right he ends up going to the gym starts working out and that was i believe sfs academy now since then i believe he's moved on to train at glory mma fitness i'm not sure if that's full-time at glory mma or if that's just for his camp but anyway that was his story for how he got into mixed martial arts he was 7-0 as an amateur he fought in bellator lfa and fury fc before the ufc he lost his pro debut in bellator at bellator 218 to an undefeated jordan newman who's still undefeated and now 4-0 in bellator so not a terrible loss it's kind of aged well he won via Round two rear naked choke in 2021 on Dana White Contender Series. He's currently 0-1 in the UFC, so still looking for his first UFC win. His opponents, he fought Jamie Pickett 2021 last year. Decision loss. I recall that fight. I broke that fight down. I loved him in that matchup. And Jamie Pickett just comes in and shows the veteran savvy and puts the brakes on what I thought would be a nice win for Joseph Holmes. That was his UFC debut after coming off of four straight wins by finish. Obviously, the step up in competition was a little tough for him, but I think he learned a lot from that fight. Did make it through the full distance. At one point, it didn't look like that. In round two, he got very tired, had somewhat of a cardio issue. Again, a lot of finishes leading up to that, so hadn't been the distance in a while, and at least survived it. Jamie Pickett is not a power puncher, so he wasn't able to finish Holmes in that fight, but Holmes took the best of it, took a bit of a butt kicking. I think he learned a few things from that fight. Part of that, he fought Johadovin, Patty, 2021, round one TKO win. Patty is 6-6 six and six overall and currently on a three-fight losing streak, so not the most quality of competition. His prior fight was on Dana White Contender Series, also last year against Shante Barnes. That was a round two submission win 
very impressive. Shows his versatility. He is very good striking. He's got very good hands, has finishing power in his hands, no question, but he's also very good at submissions. The things I like about Joseph Holmes, he's a very active fighter. This will mark his second fight this year already. He fought five times last year. He fought twice 2020 and twice 2019. So the guy is a very active fighter, which is also helpful for him. Football was his first love. He went to college, played football. Now he's a mixed martial artist, sort of a transplant. And to make it this transition, he's staying very busy, which is a way for him to sort of catch up. He has very fluid hands and excellent combinations. When his cardio is in check, his hands are great. I feel like his hands are underrated. And if he could work on his cardio and have that ability to let his hands go later in the fight, I believe he can outlast a lot of opponents in this division. And he has a very good finish rate thus far. Now, granted, no UFC wins. But up to now, his last seven wins have all been a finish of some kind, whether it's TKO or submission. Now, my concerns for Joseph Holmes, he looked very tired in round two of his last fight. It wasn't round three, it wasn't late round two, it was like a minute into round two, he was looking tired. Almost like when he came out of the corner from round one to round two, he was thinking, damn, I was expecting to finish the fight in round one and just didn't have the mentality for round two or three. Now he finishes the fight. I give him a lot of credit, show a lot of courage to finish the entire fight, but ultimately looked really gassed in round two. He doesn't have a signature win yet in the UFC, doesn't even have a win in the UFC, mind you. But looking back at his topology, most of his wins are against lower level fighters in lower level promotions. So the jury's still out on Joseph Holmes. I think he looks very good on film. When you're watching him on film, he checks a lot of the boxes you're looking for. Athletic, strong, a balanced fighter, doesn't get off balance with his strikes, patient, shows very good fighter IQ. And then there's the issue of like getting tired and not having faced good competition. So we're still not sure who this fighter is, but I believe the arrow is still pointing up on him. As for Alan Amadovsky, born in Macedonia, played rugby and soccer growing up. He boxed as a teenager all the way up to the age of 20 years old when he found MMA, dropped everything else and focused his full athletic attention on mixed martial arts. He knows what it means to struggle. At one point he was living in the gym, living on a very limited budget, working odd jobs to make ends meet just to continue his training. And so he's a guy who's been through a tough journey, appreciates the opportunity now to fight as a professional athlete. He went Pro 2012 with no amateur MMA experience. He went 2-0 in Bellator before the UFC. He signed with the UFC 2019, and he's currently 0-2 in the UFC. And I have to mention the fact that 2019 was the last time that Amadovsky fought. That is a three-year layoff. Not sure what happened. You got to chalk up 2019, 2020 as a bit of a COVID issue. And then even up through last year, 2021, there were issues of uh, fighters having problems with visas and travel issues and travel restrictions. So maybe it was all COVID related, but ultimately going to have a little bit of ring rust coming into this fight, having not fought in a real full-on mixed martial arts bout fight since 2019. Now, his notable opponents, his last two fights, he fought John Phillips, 2019, round one TKO loss in 14 seconds. And if you're an Amadovsky fan, you pretty much want to take this film, crumble it up, and throw it out. Yes, 14-second knockout. He came in as a minus-145 favorite. He gets clipped multiple times in that 14 seconds. It seems like it's a long 14 seconds, having watched it back a few times. But nonetheless, he gets clipped at least two times, two different times, like knocked down, kind of back up gets knocked down again, kind of tries to survive, and then gets completely finished on the ground with, with a TKO ground and pound finish. It was ugly. That's the only way to putting it. And you're not sure what to take from that other than the fact that in that moment, he was not at his best. I'm not sure if that's a chin issue. I'm not sure if he can grapple better than Holmes. I mean, there's a lot of questions to take from that fight, but it wasn't enough of a sample size. It was only 14 seconds. Now, keep in mind of this. Now, Phillips knocked him out in 14 seconds, right? Mr. Phillips is one in five in his last six fights, and the one win he had was, yes, against Alan Amadovsky. That was a rough one and that was his last fight three years ago prior to that he fought Christoph Jocko 2019 decision loss he was a plus 190 underdog and he got his butt pretty much wiped all over the mat for all three rounds displayed some of the worst takedown defense and worst offensive wrestling you could ever imagine and then he compiled that with no output 
I recall the announcer saying at one minute and 42 seconds to go in round three, mind you, round three, only about a minute and a half to go left in the entire fight. And the announcer says, oh, looking at the striking numbers here, Jocko has landed 104 strikes compared to eight for Amadovsky. Needless to say, he lost that fight going away three rounds to nothing on all the judges' scorecards. He could not get off the mat when he got taken down. He couldn't defend takedowns. He saw Madovsky, his last two fights, not a very good showing, not leaving a good lasting taste in the mouth. And of course, you don't want to suffer from recency bias, but there's some irony in that. What recency are we talking about? Three years ago, there is no recency. And there's going to be a lot of question marks when we look at this breakdown as to what to expect from him in this fight. Now, the things I do like about Alandowski, he fights out of a southpaw stance. That's always an adjustment for a fighter. He cuts off the cage pretty well, and he looks to keep his opponent on their heels. So for all the things he doesn't do well, he does at least try to engage. He does move forward. And that's why even in that fight where he got clipped by John Phillips several times, he was coming forward and getting clipped. He's the kind of guy where he's not going to back away from a fight. He's got some balls. Now, my concerns for Amadovsky, he's coming off of a three-year layoff and hasn't won a fight in four years. He's also coming off back-to-back losses, which we just talked about, including the 14-second knockout in his last fight. Very low volume. We talked about that stat in that one fight, but just overall, very low-volume striker. He's also very one-dimensional. He doesn't fight well on the ground. He tries to grapple, but not very good at it. He can't defend takedowns. So if he fights where he wants to fight, where he's most comfortable, it's on the feet, and it's strictly boxing. No kicking, just hands, boxing, leaving the chin wide open. Just kind of standing here like old man style, just boom, boom, boom. That's his style. That's what he wants to do. So he's very one-dimensional like that. His boxing is raw. It reminds me when you watch those old black and white films of the boxers who were like the old leather gloves, and they're just sort of like standing, broad-chested, square. They're just like, yeah, you know, just manny man type of thing. Um, that's sort of how he boxes. There's no like side technique. It doesn't. There's no like karate stance or Muay Thai stance. It's just like I'm squared up and I'm doing this, not throwing a lot of power because his hips aren't really behind anything. And so his boxing is very raw and his chin is right there for the taking. Doesn't bring his guard up very often as he's punching these, you know, wide shots. It's just leaving this whole area wide the hell open. And Holmes should be able to take advantage of that. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Holmes versus Pickett and Holmes versus Barnes from last year. We also watched Holmes versus Leninger from 2020, Amadovsky versus Phillips from 2019, and Amadovsky versus Jocko from 2019. Those five links for those five fights are down below in our video description as part of our free video library. All right, my final thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, both very low level. You've got 7-2 and two overall record for Holmes, only 8-2 and two overall record for Amadovsky. Amadovsky, at the age of 34 years old, has not fought in three years, so the experience level is very low level. IQ-wise... I'm going to give Holmes a slight advantage because he fights all the damn time. Amadovsky has not fought in a long time. I think Holmes overall is a pretty good fighter. I worry about the cardio, but you know, cardio wise, I don't know what to expect from Amadovsky either. The guy has not fought again in three years. So from a cardio standpoint, that is the biggest question mark I have on these two. If Holmes comes out, maybe does really well in round one, but doesn't get the finish and it does the same thing he did against Pickett where he comes out round two tired, maybe gets taken down by Amadovsky. Amadovsky is not a very good wrestler. But when you're trying to defend takedowns and your gas tank is depleted and you just don't have much energy, and if Holmes is in that situation, maybe Holmes gives up a few takedowns, stays in his back too long. So that cardio is the biggest question for me. When it comes to experience, again, very equal, fighter IQ, I give the edge for Joseph Holmes. I give the edge and finishing ability to Joseph Holmes. Has a lot of finishes, yes, lower level opponents, but I believe in this matchup, he'll have some opportunities both on the ground and on the feet to finish Alan Amadovsky. I give a strong edge in striking to Joseph Holmes. He's the better overall striker, throws good combinations, throws with power, and of course with Alan Amadovsky, he's not setting the bar very high with having the numbers that he's had in some of his prior fights where he just doesn't even throw anything at all. When it comes to grappling, there's no question Joseph Holmes has a big advantage. Alan Amadovsky is not a very good wrestler. He's not very good at submissions. He gets sloppy on the ground, whereas Joseph Holmes, who's not a big-time wrestler, 
but is very good at BJJ. If he finds an opportunity, he will submit Alamdovsky without question. So for me, the grappling advantage is clearly on the side of Joseph Holmes. And last but not least, who has more heart? Alan Alamdovsky went out on his sword in that 14-second knockout against John Phillips. He didn't give up. He was in it until the very end. To me, showed a guy who's got some passion, got some heart. I think he's going to come in here with that same type of I'm going to ride or die mentality. As for Joseph Holmes, I thought he showed a lot of heart when he got through round two and three against Jamie Pickett, where he was starting to lose the fight. He was getting his butt kicked. He was very tired. He hung in there and finished the fight. So both guys right now have shown me that at least they have some desire to get through a fight and not weasel their way out. So I'm not sure if there's an edge there when it comes to heart. The two props I like a lot for this fight, I like the fight not going the distance at minus 280. It's my thinking that Joseph Holmes will find a finish either by submission on the ground or he'll chin check Amadovsky on the feet. The second prop I like a lot is Holmes by a finish. I thought about the TKO prop and I thought about the submission prop, but it's so hard to predict how he's going to make this happen. You can see him hurting Alan Amadovsky on the feet with a punch, but then pulling a rear naked choke. Or you can see him rolling around on the ground and getting a rear naked choke that way. Or you can see him on the feet, piecing up Alan Amadovsky and then jumping on top of him and just getting a TKO finish. I can see all those different scenarios. So at minus 110 for the fight just being a finish, for Joseph Holmes, that seems to me to be the second safest spot I like. But again, the fight not going to decision at minus 280, that's probably your safest spot because that covers you in the event that what if Joseph Holmes gets clipped? We haven't really seen the full extent of this young man. So at minus 280, you're covered no matter what happens, at least if the fight does not go to decision. Well, that's the breakdown, boys and girls. I like Joseph, ugly man Holmes to get the fight. At minus 195, I'll be betting him straight up, probably around a full unit. I do like him that much, and then we'll be parlaying him in a few parlays. As for Alan Almodovsky, he can come in here and shit all in my apple pie and mess up a few of my bets. But man, three-year layoff, didn't look good in the last few outings, 34 years old, he got an eight-year youth advantage for Joseph Holmes. I feel like all the cards are stacked against Alan Almodovsky. I like Holmes to win the fight. We're on to the next video. Here we go. Next up, we have Eric Anders versus Jung Young Park in a middleweight bout at 185 pounds. This will be the opening fight in the main card. Eric Anders goes by ya boy, like that's my boy. Anyway, your boy is 14 and six overall, two, two and one in his last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 160 on the money line. He hails out of Birmingham, Alabama, 35 years old, six foot one in high with a 75 inch reach. He trains out of Fight Ready MMA and also does some training out of Spartan Fitness MMA. As for John Young Park, who goes by the Iron Turtle, he's 13 and five overall, three and two in his last five fights. Slight favor here, minus 205 on the money line. He hails from Seoul, South Korea, 31 years old, 5'10 in height with a 73-inch reach. He's out of Korean, top team. Also did some training recently at Syndicate MMA in Las Vegas. Looking at the numbers on Tapology, it appears that Park is the favorite, getting 62% of the votes compared to 38% coming in for Anders. I do agree. I like Jung Young Park to win the fight, most likely by decision. I believe his grappling and ground attack will be the slight edge to get him two of the three rounds. Looking at the striking numbers first, on Eric Anders landing 3.16 per minute, absorbing 3.93 never good to have a negative striking ratio and not the highest of volume whereas Jung Young Park is landing 4.69 per minute a little more volume and absorbing 3.83 with a positive ratio statistically on the feet Jung Young Park should have an advantage as for takedown offense Eric Anders is landing 1.44 takedowns per 15 minutes with a 74% takedown defense whereas Jung Young Park's landing 2.62 takedowns per 15 minutes with a 47% takedown defense now looking at the background of these two fighters Eric Anders was born on a US Air Force base in the Philippines at the time his mother was stationed there during his high school career he was becoming a big time football player he moved his senior year to san antonio texas to play for smithson valley high school which is a very successful high school football program he played linebacker in college at the university of alabama where he won a national championship in 2009 he actually led his team in tackles during the national championship game with 14. to say the least alabama has been one of the best college football programs in the united states over the last 
10 to 15 years with multiple national championships, tons of guys going to the NFL. So to say you played college football is one thing. To say you played college football at the University of Alabama, that's another thing. To say you played and started and led your team in tackles during the national championship game and started 14 games your senior year, yeah, full-on legit football player. And he actually goes from there into the NFL, played briefly for the Cleveland Browns, didn't stay in the NFL, moves on to the CFL, then eventually down to arena football. And at some point, he left football altogether to pursue a career in mixed martial arts. He still maintains a very close relationship with his former college football coach, Nick Saban, who is very revered in the likes of football realm. For the international fans, you probably don't know who he is, but he's pretty much the best college football coach ever. In any case, him and Nick are pretty close. He looks to Nick for guidance, for mentorship, and has a lot of respect for him, even long after his college playing days. He began his amateur MMA career in 2012. He actually fought approximately 22 amateur bouts. On Tapology, they don't list them all. He's a brown belt in BJJ. He fought in Bellator and LFA prior to the UFC. He went 1-0 in Bellator and 2-0 in LFA. He signed to the UFC in 2017. He is 6-6-1 in the UFC, so he has just about a 500 record down the middle. He's a family man. Him and his wife have two sons. Some of his recent opponents, he fought Andrew Muniz last year, 2021 submission loss in round one. Yeah, not the best day for him at the office. It does happen, though, against these guys who are very good with submissions. It's not unlikely. He gets taken down pretty easily in round one by Muniz. That's not the big issue. The issue is Muniz is very good at BJJ, and eventually he gets back control. And from there, it's like a panic. It's like, don't give up the rear naked choke. He ends up giving up an arm bar that was perfectly set up by Muniz, who's just very good on the ground. It's not a terrible loss. He was plus 165 on the money line. He was not expected to win. Just a learning experience against a guy who's very good with a bright future. His prior fight, Darren Stewart, also last year, he was a minus 150 favorite. That was a rematch from a prior fight that ended because of an illegal knee. Early on in the fight, there's a ton of clinching, and unfortunately, that theme continues throughout the entire three rounds. It ends in round three with Anders on top of Stewart, finishing in a very good position, landing some ground strikes, and that's probably the best part of the fight. But round one and round two, it's a lot of Eric Anders leaning up against defense, against Aaron Stewart, looking for takedowns, but not really fully getting takedowns, getting some position control on the feet, landing some good strikes in the clinch, nothing amazing. Looking tired at times, it's a dominant win. He definitely gets the win. In the round three, I want to point this out. He doesn't get a takedown in round three. What ends up happening is he gets taken down by Darren Stewart, and Stewart's on top, and you're like, oh, wow, look at Stewart making a move here. And then Darren Stewart makes a mistake, giving credit to Eric Anders. He reverses position, gets on top, and then finishes the entire third round on top, landing ground strikes, and wins the fight, going away, no problem. So not much we could take from that fight other than the fact that he likes to clinch, he likes to move forward, he likes to close distance, so does the Iron Turtle. Both guys should be wanting to work pretty, pretty closely. My biggest question after watching that fight is, if he takes that approach against Jung Young Park, who is the stronger fighter in the clinch? And who has better cardio because maybe the stronger fighter wins round one in the clinch and does a better job of controlling position but then round two and three fatigues i'm not sure off bat who is the better fighter in that area we'll talk more about that as we break down this film now some things i like about your boy eric anders he's very active as a fighter he fought twice last year once 2020 and three times 2019 he fights out of a southpaw stance that's always an adjustment for his opponent he's known for his striking not much of his grappling but his striking is pretty good not high volume but he does throw with some power has a very powerful overhand left and lastly, he's also a very large fighter for this weight class. He cuts weight, of course, like most guys, but he has a very big frame. He tends to look like the bigger fighter on fight day. Now, my concerns for Eric Anders, this is a secondary sport for him. He started this later. Now, he has some foundation in mixed martial arts. He's talked about how he did some training in MMA, even back in his football years as a way to mix up his training. But the reality is when you watch his striking, you can tell he hasn't been boxing or kickboxing since he was a teenager. So the boxing is rough. The overhand left is very much an overhand, heads down, very looping, kind of slow, 
easier for a very skilled technical boxer to see coming. Nonetheless, very powerful, but his striking, not very smooth. Again, a negative striking ratio, landing 3.16 per minute compared to 3.93 coming in. And I think that's all, again, because his foundation was in a different sport. Now, could he make improvements? Of course, small improvements. He's 35 years old. He's not going to see big advanced improvements. The way he fights is probably the way he's going to fight the rest of his career. He could make little improvements here and there. But again, the boxing is a weakness for him, both offensively and defensively. His takedown defense, it appears okay numbers-wise, 74% takedown defense. But when you watch him on film, He's not very good with takedown defense, especially late round two and into round three. When he gets a little fatigued and slows down, he's not a very fast guy. Quickness is not his thing. Now, he was a former linebacker in college for football. And if you know that position, that position is a position where, yeah, you do need quickness. You do need to have good wheels and be able to move around and be fast. But it's also more of a hammer. You're hitting people, and especially in college football where there's a lot of running between the tackles. He's tackling running backs. He's making good plays within that box. He's not necessarily running down and chasing down wide receivers and making plays on the ball. That hammer approach, that physical specimen who works between the tackles, who played linebacker Alabama football in the mixed martial arts arena translates to a guy who has a lot of power, yes, but doesn't have the fastest feet, not the quickest movement, not very technical, more of a grunt type of fighter. And I kind of got off on a tantrum there, but the bottom line is his takedown defense, I don't believe it's very good. I think Park takes him down multiple times in this fight with ease. I'm going to probably sound like I'm contradicting myself right here. He does have power. Okay, I did say that. Yes, it's true, but he's not displayed finishing ability recently. For example, his last two wins were via decision, and he hasn't finished somebody in over three years. It's just some numbers. Numbers don't always tell the whole truth, but it seems like recently his fights are going the distance. He's a bit robotic at times. This goes back to his physique and the bigger guy, linebacker, college football, yada, yada, yada. He tends to slow down specifically during the fight where you could see his movements. His footwork slows down. He becomes very heavy on his feet, not as effective with takedowns, tends to lean on his opponent, and just looks fatigued overall. And I believe when that starts to set in, that robotic movement that he already displays when he's fresh, it becomes even more sludging and robotic. That could be the case of me watching film and seeing him in certain scenarios and fights where he's being fatigued. Maybe I'm being biased, but it just appears to me it's not so much age. He's 35. He's still in his prime years for a middleweight, but it seems as if he moves very robotic at times. When he gets fatigued, it becomes even more robotic movement. He has one win in the last three years, and his prior win before that was by split decision. He had a rough stretch between 2018 and 2019 where he lost four or five fights in the UFC. He lost to Khalil Roundtree, Elias Theodoro, Diego Santos, and Leota Machida. Decent names, not bad opponents, but he had a rough stretch there with three straight losses. As for the Korean Turtle, who is from South Korea, he began his pro career in 2013. He joined the UFC in 2019. He's got a 3-2 record in the UFC. He's earned Friday Night once in the UFC. He's coming into this fight off of a round 2 KO loss to Gregory Rodriguez about seven months ago. He's the former Yawara FC middleweight champion. I don't know what promotion that is, but I kind of like saying that name, Yawara. He fights out of a traditional orthodox stance. His last opponent, Gregory Rodriguez, they fought last year. He lost the fight via round two TKO. He was a plus 120 pick up on the money line. He simply lost a stand-up battle. He landed some good shots. Rodriguez has a good chin, and he ends up coming up on the shorter end of the stick. It was a close fight. Either guy could have won the fight. Round two gets wild. It's an amazing finish. Both guys are getting cracked. Rodriguez is getting very tired with that muscly frame he has. He has a way of gassing out at times. He was getting very tired, being very sloppy, just winging. Both guys are just winging punches. And Rodriguez just lands the one or two effective shots that are necessary to put Jung Young Park on the point of being knocked out. The referee steps in because it is getting brutal. Both guys are hitting each other with tons of blows. He displayed some balls in that fight. He went on in the sword. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe Rodriguez. Yes, he lost the fight, but he displayed a lot of cojones. If you know what I'm saying, he fought toe-to-toe -to -toe with a pretty badass Brazilian fighter.
Is Eric Anderson as good of a boxer as Rodriguez? I don't think so. I think there's some similarities in the way they box, but Rodriguez has more smooth boxing, better technique, longer arms. With Eric Anders, his stand-up technique is, like I said, a little rough. Jung Young Park should have the advantage on the feet when it comes to boxing. He also fought Tafan Njukwe last year, won by majority decision. We're going to talk about this scorecard here in a second. He was a plus 115 pick'em. He dominated Tafan Njukwe for all three rounds. He put on a complete wrestling clinic. And in round three, he took down Njukwe, kept him on the ground the entire time. He had something like 11 minutes and 13 seconds of control time in this fight. It was a one-sided fight the entire time. In round three, he has Tafan on his back. He now cuts up Tafan. And if you know Tafan, he's a very dark-skinned guy pretty durable, doesn't seem to wear a lot of wear and tear in his face. He was all blooded up that fight. Park had him bleeding from all different places on his face, cut him up badly with some elbows, some great ground and pound, and won the fight 30-25 on one scorecard, 29-26 on another scorecard, and here we go, the last scorecard, 28-28 draw. I'm, I'm like, I was watching this replay and I forgot about this fight. You know, you forget about these crazy scorecards. So one judge thinks it's 30-25, which I could see that. He dominated the entire fight. Again, over 11 minutes of control time and busy on top in control position. Another judge saw it 29-26 for Park. Okay, I can see that too. What was the judge smoking who saw it as a 28-28 draw? Now, mind you, there was also a point loss in the fight, and the point was lost by Tafana Jukwe. <laughs> so that judge was still like, nah, I'm still, I see it as a draw, dude. I see it as a draw. Oh, my goodness. All right, prior fight, John Phillips. 2020 decision win. He was a minus 285 favorite in that fight. He put on, again, another wrestling clinic. If you haven't watched these films or don't have time to watch the films, Jun Young Park can wrestle. It's definitely a feather in his cap. I believe if he takes that approach in this fight, he has an easy path to getting at least two of the three rounds to win the fight. Anyway, in the fight against John Phillips, puts on a wrestling clinic, takes him down to the ground, secures top position in all of round one and round two, earns something crazy like 13 minutes of total control time in the fight. I mean, literally almost every minute of the fight, he was in control position. All three judges gave him the score, 30-25, easy one-sided win. Now, John Phillips, okay, whatever. Maybe not the best fighter, not the best opponent. But against a guy like that, he dominates him and does what he's supposed to do. Now, you'd like to see a finish, of course, in that situation, but he's not really known for his finishing ability. More of a grinder, he'll grind you out. Maybe get a finish by a TKO, but more or less just grind you out for a full-on ground assault on his way to getting a win on the scorecards. One more fight, Marc-Andre Barriou, 2019 decision win. He was a plus 100 pick him in that fight. That fight was being held in South Korea, so if you actually go back and watch that fight, the fans, every single time Park does anything, like just anything, they're like, oh, oh. It was an exciting atmosphere. He landed some nice strikes early in round one. He definitely gets Marc-Andre Barriot's attention. You can see Barriot's like, oh shit, this uh, this South Korean boy could strike. And then after piecing him up for the early part of round one, he takes Barriot to the ground with ease and starts the wrestling attack, which he's very good at. Round two starts off again on the feet, piecing up Marc-Andre Barriot. He's faster, he's slicker, better defense. Marc-Andre Barriot's not a bad striker, but he's not as fast as Park. And you can see that was very much on display and he couldn't make up for that speed. Now, when round three comes around, things get a little interesting here because he's won round one and round two and he's also fighting in South Korea. You figure that, you know, the judges there, everything else. Okay. But round three, he loses round three. He loses it on the scorecards. He starts losing his cardio. He gets tired and maybe he does know I have to just simply avoid, go the five minutes, I'll get the win. And maybe that's his philosophy, but it looks like he's simply just slowing down. It's not a great look. He depended fully on the scorecards and had no interest in trying to finish the fight. Didn't love that. Kind of some question marks there. 
Now, on the flip side, he could probably tell me, hey, man, I won round one and round two. I'm just trying to get a win. So I guess it depends on how you look at it. Looking at his tapology, the most notable wins in his career have been over Mark andre Barriut and Tafan and Jukoy. Some things I like about Jung Young Park, he does very well closing the distance. He usually has the reach disadvantage in his matchups. He makes up for that by closing the distance, getting into clean situations, backing up his opponent against the fence. He has a solid lower leg kick when he uses it. I just wish he would use it more often. And as he fatigues, he doesn't use it at all. He has a very effective wrestling game. Once in top control on the ground, he's busy. He lands hard strikes. He can cut up his opponent. He could damn near finish the fight on the ground, if not at least secure a round. These takedowns usually start off with him pushing his opponent against the cage, looking for single legs, looking for double legs, looking for body locks, whatever it takes to get his opponent a little fatigued, and then eventually tripping him, throwing him, or sweeping him, or just a simple good old-fashioned brushing takedown. He finds a way to rip his opponent down to the ground. I imagine in round one, they're both going to look to work in the clinch. It's going to come down to who's stronger in that situation, who gets the takedown, who finishes on top when they get to the ground. He's been on a pretty good streak recently. He's won three of his last four fights. A side note, in his fight against Ninjukoi, he displayed an excellent jab. You don't think of a South Korean fighter as being a very good striker. In the case of Park, he's got very good striking skills. He's better at striking in this matchup than Eric Anders. And that jab in the case of the Ninjukoi fight was awesome. It was hard. It was active. It set up his other strikes. Ninjukoi doesn't have the best striking defense. But in any case, in that matchup, you see that on the feet, Jung Young Park also has a basic good jab. Now, my concerns for Jung Young Park, he may have some durability issues. He's been finished in all of his last three losses, and two of those happened in the last three years. He's coming into this fight off of a round two TKO loss in his last fight. He doesn't have the best head movement at times. He tends to have his chin up pretty high, sort of like looking out there and trying to see what's going on. Unfortunately, that leaves you open for counters, and as he fatigues, the head movement diminishes even more. And like his opponent here, he lacks finishing ability recently. His last three wins were all via decision. Now, this probably applies to all fighters, but in the case of Jung Young Park, it was just very noticeable for me. When he gets fatigued, his striking technique goes out the window, his wrestling stops altogether, and he leaves his chin wide open. His guard's down, his hands are down. He made this fatal mistake against Rodriguez. In that second round, second round, mind you, not round three, he gets to a point where he's trying to just slug with Rodriguez. He's getting fatigued. So is Rodriguez, too. They both could have got knocked out in that fight. But he makes that mistake, shows a little bit of poor fighter IQ as well by trying to get into a slugfest with Rodriguez, and eventually gets clipped and knocked out and loses the fight. Again, he was fatigued. Bad technique, swinging from the fences. If he looks back at that fight, I'm sure he would like to redo that over again and not get into a situation with Rodriguez. Nonetheless, when he gets fatigued, technique and everything else kind of goes out the window and he becomes the worst version of himself. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Park vs. Rodriguez, Park vs. Njukwe, Park vs. Phillips, and Park vs. Baryut. We also watched Anders vs. Muniz and Anders vs. Stewart. To watch those six fights as part of our free video library, just look down here below on YouTube in our description. You're going to see those six links. My final few thoughts on these two fighters, experience-wise, just about the same. You got 13-5 record for Park, 14-6 for Anders, very similar UFC experience. I don't think either guy has an experience advantage. For fighter IQ, I'm going to give a small edge to Park. Both of them have pretty good fighter IQ. You don't stay in the UFC this long with this many fights unless you're a pretty solid fighter and you got a good head on your shoulders. I think Park is a little more well-rounded. He's a better striker and then on the ground, a little more effective. So I'm going to give him a slight IQ advantage. As for cardio, I've seen holes in both of their games at times when it comes to the cardio department. I don't think they have bad cardio, but what I do see at times is their effectiveness to be fully energized, put it that way, is compromised by the way they fight at certain moments in round two, maybe even in round three. If there's some grappling going on, the gas tank of both these fighters will be tested. And so we're going to see who has a better gas tank. But I think both these guys are exploitable in that area. 
As for finishing ability, not much to talk about. I do expect this fight to go the full distance. And again, if you're imagining a grappling wrestling exchange, you know, a lot of time against defense leaning, clock gets chewed up. I expect the fight going the distance. I don't think either guy has a finish in this fight. And recently, they just have not been good finishers. I think Jung Young Park is a better striker. We talked about some of the details and the numbers. And again, Eric Anders has a negative striking ratio. Who's the better grappler? You know what? At times, Eric Anders looks like the better grappler. On film, looks good, gets guys down. Of course, he's a former college football player. He was tackling people for a living at one point in the NFL. He's a former linebacker. He can get people to the ground. But is he the better grappler than Jung Young Park? I don't know that. I think the better grappler here will be the one who's stronger in the clinch, like physically stronger, and then round two and three, who has the better cardio. I'm thinking it probably will be Park. I'm picking Park to win the fight. I think he'll be more effective as the fight goes on in the grappling exchanges. But I have to give credit where credit's due. Eric Anders on film is a pretty good grappler himself. Likes a dirty box. He's the bigger fighter in this matchup, about three inches taller than Park. He will look to lean against him on the fence. And so there should be some grappling advantages for both guys. But at the end of the fight, we're going to know who's the better grappler. That's for sure. In the last category, who has more heart, who has more passion, or for lack of better words, who has more cojones? I thought Park looked amazing against Rodriguez from the standpoint that he didn't back down. He went out on his shield, got TKO'd. Not a great outcome, but it showed that he's got heart. He'll stand there. He'll fight. He's not going to back down. For Eric Anders, I don't have an example of that in watching prior fights. I'm not saying he doesn't have that in him. I'm not saying he doesn't have a dog in him. I mean, playing Alabama football the whole nine, playing pro football, you know, listen, the guy's got an amazing background. I just don't have the example of watching him on film and seeing him do that. So I don't have an advantage for either guy for terms of who wants it more, who has more heart. If this fight is close, which I expect, and it goes to a grinding round three and they're wrestling each other, there's fatigue going on. We're going to see who wants it more. I think Park will have the slight cardio advantage. I think he'll have the ground top position advantage. That's going to matter in this fight. But could Eric Anders pull it out at the end? Maybe get a TKO, get a knockout, do something wild, reverse position. Show me the cardio that I don't think he has displayed recently. I'm not sure. But the point is, heart-wise, I don't have an advantage for either guy here. They both have been solid fighters and been pretty durable for the most part. The props I like for this fight, the one I like the most is the fight going the distance at minus 175. Now, if you like Jung Young Park to win the fight, it's probably by decision. He's minus 205 on the money line, but by decision, it's plus 120. It's minus 280 for the fight to go round three. That'll be my second favorite prop on this fight. The fight ends in round two is plus 1,200, or the fight ends in round three is plus 1,800. Hear me out for a second. I've been talking about the fight that goes a distance, distance this, this and that. Fight starts round three. Okay. If Anders slows down a bit and gets taken down and Park does a little bit what he did against Stefan and Jukwe and lands some good elbows from top control, maybe gets some back control and just simply pounds out Eric Anders and Eric is a little tired, could we see a finish? That's one idea for a finish. And on the flip side, Park got TKO'd by Rodriguez. He got his clock clean. There was no question about that. That was about seven months ago. It's his first fight since then. Eric Anders throws with some power. His overhand left is lethal. He definitely has power. Now, he hasn't finished people recently, but he has that power. So what if he catches Park in round two or round three? I'm not sure I'm going to bet that, but at plus 1,200 for the fight ending in round two or plus 1,800 for the fight ending in round three, either way, however ends for either fighter, those are two spots I'm going to have to find a way to put a little dash on. I think there's some value there. I see the fight going the distance, yes. But if it doesn't go the distance, I don't think it's a round one finish, like not a crazy round one finish. I think round one gets a little slow at times. We hear some boo birds, a little leaning against the fence, some clinch control. But then round two and round three, I think cardio plays a factor and there's going to be some openings there. 
Well, that's your breakdown, ladies and gentlemen. That's how we see it here. We've got Jun Young Park, the South Korean fighter at minus 205 on the money line to win the fight outright, most likely by decision. I think Eric Anders is a tremendous fighter, has a good possibility to win the fight here as well, and it should be close. But we're gonna go with Park. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Take advantage of our free video library and give us some feedback, give us some comments. Do you like Eric Anders to win the fight? Am I underestimating Eric Anders in this matchup? Again, I like Park to win the fight, but it should be close. We're on to the next video. Here we go. It's hard to breathe, but that's alright. Hush. All right, the first of two women's bouts in the main card is going to be a strawweight battle at 115 pounds between two Brazilian fighters, Pollyanna Viana versus Tabitha Ritchie. Ritchie goes by Baby Shark. She's 6-1 overall, 4-1 her last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 120 on the money line. She's now based out of California, 27 years old, 5-1 in height with a 62-inch reach. She trains out of Paragon Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. As for Pollyanna Viana, who goes by Dama de Ferro, which translates from Portuguese to English to Iron Lady or like Man of Steel, that kind of idea. Makes sense. Good nickname. She's 12-4 and four overall, 2-3 and three in her last five fights. She's currently at plus 100 on the money line. She's out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. She's about to turn 30 years old. 5-5 five five in height with a 67-inch reach. She's out of Tata Fight Team. So height and reach-wise, she has quite a big advantage. Now, I do want to note that I don't believe she's 5-5. Five five. I think she's more like 5-7, five 5-8. Foot five foot so she'll have about a 7-8 to eight inch height advantage and along with a 5-inch reach advantage in this fight. Very notable. As for the public votes on Tapology, it's very close. Vianney's at 58% and 40 2% coming in for Richie. It makes perfect sense. These fighters are very equally matched. They're both very good on the ground. They finish fights on the ground with submissions on the feet. Not their strong suit. We'll talk about that when we do this breakdown. But I like Tabitha Richie to win the fight. I think when it comes to the ground game, she's the better wrestler, and that's going to end up paying dividends in this fight. Whereas Paula Viana may be the better BJJ practitioner, but she requires... The right setup to get an arm bar or something like that to get a win. Whereas Tabitha Ritchie, I can see her grinding out a win here on the ground with control position. As for the striking numbers in these two fighters, Pollyanna Viana is landing 3.71 per minute, absorbing 3.01 positive ratio and should be noted as a ground type of fighter and grappler usually these numbers tend to be either negative or lower volume so 3.71 per minute is pretty good volume for a grappler as for tabitha ritchie averaging about the same 3.43 per minute in output but her input is 6.52 tremendously negative striking ratio that could be a problem when she fights better strikers in this fight against Pollyanna vienna shouldn't be much of an issue because again vienna's more of a ground attack that's her path to victory she needs to work from her back on the ground submission opportunities elbow from her back. As for takedown offense, Vienna's landing 1.12 per 15 minutes, so just about one takedown per fight, and Richie's landing 3.26 per 15 minutes. So again, the wrestling dynamic, which I believe will be a big factor in this fight, is favoring Tabitha Richie from the numbers side. For takedown defense, Vienna's at 50% and 0% for Tabitha Richie. Not sure why it's 0% for Tabitha Richie. Maybe she hasn't even had a fight to where she's had to defend a takedown. That could be the reason why it's 0%. For Vienna, I'm surprised at even 50% because she welcomes working from her back. She will pull guard quite a bit, so that's a striking number for me. I thought it would be even lower than that. Let's talk about the background of these two fighters. For Pollyanna Viana, she was born and raised in Brazil. She's a brown belt BJJ. She grew up with a single mother. She began mixed martial arts at the age of 21 years old. She's won 21 state BJJ titles in her native country of Brazil. She's well known for a viral moment back in 2019 when she was the victim of an attempted robbery or mugging, and she ends up cold clocking this guy, knocking him basically out, did some pretty good damage, subdued the guy, and held him till the police came. Images of the guy went out on the internet. She went viral. She fought in Jungle Fight prior to the UFC. She's the former Jungle Fight strawweight champion. She's earned performance of the night once in the UFC. A little factoid for you, Pollyanna Viana and Tabitha Ritchie both have 500 records in the UFC, so someone's coming out of here with a under 500 record, and someone's coming out of here with above 500.
500 record. Now, her most notable opponent, her last fight, Molly Martin, 2021, round one armbar. Very impressive. She came in as a minus 110 pick so if you bet on her, tons of value in that fight. She pulled guard early, which is one of the themes of how she fights. She pulls guard. She starts working from her back. Immediately starts landing elbows. She's very busy, looking for submissions. Gets a triangle choke position pretty early on Molly Martin. Now, Martin fights it for a while, but eventually she gets a hold of the arm, gets the arm bar. Very impressive. Now, Molly Martin is 1-3 in three in her last four fights and is currently on a two-fight losing streak. Her prior fight, Emily Whitmire, 2020, round one armbar win again. So, back-to-back armbar wins. She was a plus 115 underdog, slight pick him. So again, good value on her if you were betting on her in that fight. She got taken down very early in that fight, and of course, she's working from her back. It's a common theme in her fights. Once on her back, she starts to work, changing positions, looking for submissions, landing some elbows. She looks very comfortable in this fight, and she ends up finding herself an armbar. Emily Whitmire taps out very quickly. You can't really tell from the film. They're kind of rolling around, so maybe it was a really bad armbar, but Emily Whitmire tapped very fast in that fight. And it should be noted, Emily Whitmire is 4-5 and five overall and has lost three fights in a row. Veronica Macedo, 2019, lost by a round one armbar. So yeah, I'm not just repeating myself. Those are two in a row armbar wins against Martin and Whitmire, and then the armbar lost in the prior fight before that against Macedo. She came to that fight as a plus 110 pick'em. Veronica has fought some decent competition over the course of her career, but she is also one in four in her last five fights. 2019, she also fought Hannah Cyphers, split decision loss. She was a minus 300 favorite in that fight. So terrible value there if you were betting on her. She ends up crapping the bed and losing the fight by decision. As usual, early in round one, She's working from her back. The problem with this fight is she can't find the submission. She's looking for submission opportunities. She's looking for a heel hook. Hannah disengages, gets back to the feet, and forces her to fight for lengthy periods of time in this fight on the feet, which is not her forte. Round one clearly goes to Hannah Cyphers because she's got ground control on the top, and she's lighting her up on the feet. In round two, it comes out, and it, once again, Pollyanna Vienna is working from her back. It's a common theme. It's one of the issues we're going to have with her when we talk about her positive and negatives. She gets up on her back again in round three. Now, notably, in round three, when she's not on her back and the fights on the feet she's getting pieced up she's getting hit hard she's getting lit up it doesn't look good now she pulls guard at one point it's probably the better option for her because on the feet she was not looking good now hannah cyphers is 10 and 7 overall and she's lost four in a row hannah cyphers is probably her second best opponent she's fought against besides jj aldrich and cyphers looked very good against her she pieced her up she made vn look pretty bad in that fight she fought JJ Aldrich in 2018, lost by decision. She was a minus 155 favorite coming to that fight. Early in the fight, Aldrich comes in and pins her against the fence, like neutralizes her takedown ability. Doesn't work from the back now. She's got her up against the fence. So kind of outworks her, a little bit more powerful in the clinch. Looks like the stronger fighter in the clinch. The shorter fighter, more stockier, JJ Aldrich that is. In the open, Aldrich is piecing her apart. She just simply can't keep up with her. Better combinations from Aldrich, landing with more accuracy, landing the bigger punches. Ultimately, JJ forces her to fight her fight on the feet. Pollyanna Vianney wants to work on the ground, specifically from her back. Now she's being forced to fight on the feet the way Aldrich wants to fight, and that's just not her wheelhouse. By the time round three came around, she was down two rounds to nothing. In round three, she tries to fight on the feet and gets completely picked apart. She pulls guard at one point. That's probably a smart move because on the feet, she was not looking good. On the feet, she looked tired in round three. She looked mentally beaten up, physically beaten up, was getting cracked. Knees were buckling at times. Aldrich put on a show. She looked really good, and Pollyanna Vianna looked very inexperienced. Now, granted, that was four years ago. She's made some improvements, but against competition like Aldrich and Cyphers, she didn't look very good. JJ Aldrich is 11-4 overall and probably the best competition that Vianna has faced thus far. Now, one more fight. I didn't watch this fight, but I saw in her tapology, Aline Saddlemayer. 2014 decision loss. Saddlemayer is 12-14-0 overall with no UFC or Bellator experience. That's on her tapology. Granted, it's eight years ago, but I'm trying to paint a picture here. 
Pollyanna Vienna is a very good fighter. Good submission ability. Amazing BJJ skills. But when she fought better opponents like Aldridge and Cyphers, she was a shell of herself. Not very good. Now when she fights these other cans, she looks a little better. And she has some cans on her resume. The things I like about Pollyanna Vienna, very good finish rate, especially at 115-pound women's division. She has eight straight wins via finish. She's got finishing ability, especially via submission. Seven of those were by submission and four specifically by armbar. She's very durable. She's never been TKO'd in her career, only been finished one time, and that was by round one armbar. In this matchup, she has the better strength of schedule. Her 12-4 record was against better competition than the 6-1 record of Tabitha Ritchie. And though she fights off of her back, she is very busy on her back, not just moving for better position and submission opportunities. Her elbows are sharp. She's got long arms, so she is very active from her back. We've seen some fights recently where fighters were actually able to win a round on their back. Could she do that? It's possible. Tabitha Ritchie has a rough ground game. At times, she can leave herself open. At times, she can show a little bit of fatigue. So I could see a path where Vienna could pick up a round in this fight working from her back. She is very busy on her back. Now, my concerns for Pollyanna Vienna or my critiques of her, she could be a little more active. She fought once last year and once in 2020. She has limited striking skills, as we've talked about. Against Aldrich, she got picked apart. Vienna has very poor head movement as well. So her head movement's not the best. She's tall. Her head's up high. Her chin's up high. She's always open for counters. And against a fast fighter who's got quickness, she's very open for counters. She's willing to pull guard a little too much for my liking. I get that's what she's good at. But it results in her working from her back for long periods of time. If she can't get a submission opportunity, it's just a matter of clock time and she's losing it. Now she's busy from her back, yes. But against a good ground opponent who lands a few strikes and could deal with the submission attempts, she ends up losing rounds again from her back, which is what she creates because she pulls guard herself. She's making improvements. She's still a young fighter at 30 years old. But up until now, she's been very one-dimensional. She needs to work on the ground and from her preference, from her back to find the path of victory for an armbar, submission, triangle choke. On the feet, she's usually just outmatched. It's not her game. And when it comes to wrestling and top position, that's also not her game. She works from her back. That's her path to victory. So again, she's very one-dimensional. And as we saw against Macedo when she lost by round one armbar, she's a long fighter. She's very lean, which is good for setting up certain submissions, but not great for defending submissions. Definitely not great for defending armbars when she has this long, thin arm out there, and Macedo took advantage of that. So when she's up against a good BJJ practitioner, that could be a problem. And Tabitha Ritchie is pretty good with armbars herself. Now, looking at Tabitha Ritchie, she was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She wanted to be a mixed martial arts fighter even when she was a little kid. She has a lot of athletes in her family. Her father was a judo black belt. She coaches judo when she's not training herself. She fought an LFA prior to the UFC, and she's currently one and one in the UFC. Her last two opponents, she fought Maria Oliveira in 2021, won the fight via decision. She was a minus 275 favorite in that fight, and she won the fight comfortably. She had a dominating first round, took over top control, pushed the pace, forced her opponent on her heels the entire round. I love that about her fighting style. She comes forward. She's a bully. She's coming right at her opponent. No nonsense. She worked very well in the clinch, was definitely the stronger fighter in clinch situations, a little shorter than her opponent, like she'll be in this fight, but really strong in the clinch, had her head up underneath the chin of her opponent, using good technique. In round two, she takes down Maria Oliveira multiple times and almost finishes the fight. It goes the full distance, but round two got really close. Amazing ground and pound, tons of top pressure, just completely wore out Oliveira. Maria Oliveira is 12-5 overall, 0-1 in the UFC, so it's kind of hard to make a distinction on how good or bad she is. In that fight, she did not look very very good against Tabitha Ritchie. Her prior fight, Man of Firat, 2021, lost via round two TKO. She came in as a plus 415 underdog. It should be noted that fight was 125 pounds. This one's down 115 pounds, her normal weight class. So she came into that fight up a weight class against a very good prospect in Firat, got pieced apart, was so much smaller than Firat. She had a big reach disadvantage and height disadvantage, and Firat, who's a very good striker, took full advantage of that, pieced her apart for two full rounds. In round two, she's basically kind of running away. She's disengaging, turning her head. She's trying to block 
whatever she can. Ends up being a TKO on the feet, and Manny Farah just pieces her apart. It was not a good matchup, and just basically an overall mismatch. But she took the fight. She came in there, up a weight class, at least showed that she was willing to go out on her sword, did not give up, did not tap out, went out on her feet. And so overall, you take it as a learning experience. Does Pollyanna Vianna come in here with a longer reach and do something like Manny Farah? No. <laughs> that's just simply not Pollyanna's game. Now, she may be built similarly to Farah, but that's not what she does. Now, some things I like about Tabitha Ritchie. She's a very active fighter. She fought four times last year, and she fought once 2020. This would be her first fight 2022. She has some finishing ability. Two of her last three wins were via finish. She's been very durable thus far in her career. She's been finished only one time in her pro MA career, and that was against Manon Firat. She got finished one time back in the day, 2017, in a custom rules bout. We don't know what the parameters of that bout might have been, and usually custom rules means if someone just barely gets a little hurt, they stop the fight. And maybe the biggest and most important attribute she brings to this fight is her aggressive forward posture, her technique of coming forward, cutting off the cage. She doesn't always use the best technique coming forward, but the forward mindset, the pressure cutting off the cage will put Pollyanna Vianna in a perfect situation to pull guard and go to her back. And at that point, it becomes Tabitha Ritchie's defense against submissions on the ground, top control position is staying busy. And I believe that'll be a fatal mistake for Pollyanna Vianna to once again, like she usually does, giving up position for submission opportunities. Now, my concern for Tabitha Ritchie, she's faced very limited competition. Now, man, if you're out, was good competition, of course, and she got finished. Other than that, pretty low level people, and Vianna definitely has the strength of schedule advantage in this matchup. She charges in with her head down. Like I'm talking, her head's looking straight down, big overhand looping right, very poor boxing technique. Some power behind the punches, yes, but she can't even see what she's hitting. Now, that would be a problem against a very good striker, someone who could land a knee maybe or an uppercut. I don't see Pollyanna Vianna doing that. Now, unless she's made some big improvements in her striking, but with Tabitha Ritchie, she tends to lower her head, come in big overhand rights, looking for a clinch situation, looking to take the fight to the ground. It's not the greatest thing to look at. Could she land a shot or two on Pollyanna Vianna, who keeps her head up pretty still and doesn't move her chin? Yeah, but I don't think she does much with those punches other than just closing the distance. It could look better. It definitely looks a little bit unattractive at times. And when she comes with these big loaded punches, she also risks the opportunity of getting off balance, maybe getting giving up her back. So let's be careful she doesn't miss a big strike and then give up her back to Pollyanna Vianna. And just like Pollyanna Vianna, she requires the ground attack as a part of her means to victory. She must get to the ground. Her striking game is raw. She's not amazing on the feet. Now, could this fight be on the feet for periods of time because both fighters are not great on the feet and looking to test their abilities? That is a possibility. But overall, Tabitha Ritchie, just like Pollyanna Vianna, requires some ground activity for them to be successful in their fight. The fights we watched during this film, we watched Vianna vs. Martin, Vianna vs. Whitmire, Vianna vs. Macedo, and Vianna vs. Cyphers. We also watched Ritchie vs. Oliveira and Ritchie vs. Fiorat. To watch any one of those six fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube in our description. You're going to see those six links available. Alrighty, my final few thoughts on these two fighters. For Tabitha Ritchie, I believe she has the experience disadvantage in this fight. Only seven total mixed martial arts fights compared to 16 for Vienna, and Vienna has fought the better strength of schedule. For fighter IQ, about the same. I don't love that Vienna is always chasing submissions and giving up position. I don't love that Tabitha Ritchie got completely pieced up by Manon Firat and has shown just a one-dimensional attack. They're both one-dimensional. For that reason, they both have a lower fighter IQ. For cardio, they've both checked out. I thought Vienna looked very tired in her fight against Hannah Cyphers, but that was years ago i think maybe hannah cyphers or jj aldrich one of those two fights but in recent past she's looked pretty good then again her last three fights have all finished in round one so maybe some cardio questions there about vienna we don't know as for tabitha ritchie a grinding style seems to be pretty good with her cardio so i'm gonna give them both the same rating for cardio as for finishing ability they're very similar they're dangerous in the ground they've got armbar finishes i think if tabitha ritchie gets Pollyanna vienna in the wrong spot here again ritchie's got this more compact build whereas vienna is more of a longer build if she gets one of vienna's arm that could be a path for her 
getting a submission win. Vice versa, Vienna is very dangerous from back, very long body, finds the way to get her arm bars, gets long legs around the neck of her opponent, finds triangle chokes, triangle submissions. So both of them are dangerous when it comes to finishing. As for striking, this will not be a Golden Gloves display. These two are very raw on the feet. And so from that standpoint, they both have a low rating for their striking ability. As for grappling, I'm going to give a slight edge to Pollyanna Vienna, but let's talk about what grappling entails. It entails wrestling. That's a component of it. It also entails, you know, judo sweeps and throws, top position control, submission skills, both offense and defense. So breaking this up into categories, I think Tabitha Ritchie is the better wrestler and definitely gets better takedowns. No question. That's her category. And even maybe some top control position is where she's better at. But Vienna is so good at submissions and so lethal from her back and very busy with the elbows from her back. You can see her cutting her opponent in a fight because of the elbows, obviously fighting submissions. So when it comes to grappling, the BJJ background of Vienna gives her a slight edge here, but I'm not doubting Richie on the ground. She probably has to win the fight on the ground at some point because her path to victory will include being on the ground. I believe she wins the fight by decision, so that means she has to survive the submission opportunities from Vienna and control top position. Now, who has more heart in this matchup? Who has more cojones or balls? I haven't seen enough from both fighters to determine who has more heart. I thought Tabitha Ritchie took an ass whooping like a lady with her chin held high against Manny Firat, so that was good to see. As for Pollyanna Vienna, I've seen her get knocked down. I've seen her being under stress. She kept fighting. They're both Brazilian. They've got that Brazilian mantra. They've got that Brazilian heart. So I don't see an edge here for either fighter as to who has more heart or more passion. The two props I like for this fight, I like the fight going the distance at minus 145. Now, you can make arguments the fight doesn't knock on the distance. Both guys have a lot of finishes recently. And of course, in the case of Pollyanna Vienna, last three fights have all ended in round one via armbar, either her getting an armbar or her armbarring her opponent. So it looks like it could maybe go under. But I think they're so evenly matched. I think Tabitha Ritchie is going to neutralize some of the submission opportunities for Vienna. The fight goes a distance at minus 145. I like that spot a lot. Again, the fight probably goes to decision is what I'm thinking. Plus 250 for Vienna by decision and plus 160 for Tabitha Ritchie by decision. Both pretty good spots. Now, Ritchie at minus 120 in money line may be the better spot because again, there's a submission possibility. But if you're looking for someone like Vienna to win the fight, it's plus 100 on the money line, but plus 250 is a prop bet. So that prop bet would be a lot more valuable. Both of them have striking as their Achilles heel. We'll see what happens when the fight gets to the ground. I like Tabitha Richie to win the fight. Am I underestimating Pollyanna's submission ability? I don't think so. I think she's a good fighter. It's a good matchup, but I believe Tabitha Richie comes out on top because of position control. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and we're on to the next video. Next up on the main card, we have a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Chitty Ninja Kwani, who goes by Bang Bang, like Chitty Bang Bang, versus Dusko Todorovic, who goes by Thunder. Mr. Todorovic is 11-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here, plus 160 in the money line. He hails out of Belgrade, Serbia. 28 years old, 6'1 in height with a 74-inch reach. He trains out of Sector MMA. As for Chitty Bang Bang, he's 21-7 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. A slight favorite here at minus 190 in the money line. He hails out of Las Vegas, Nevada. 33 years old, 6'3 in height with an 80-inch reach. So notably, he'll have a 6-inch reach advantage and about a two-inch height advantage. He trains out of Saxon, Janjira, Muay Thai. As for the public votes coming in on Tapology, Ninja Kwani is the public favorite, getting about 90% of the votes, only about 10%, 11% to be exact, coming in for Todorovic. I do agree. I think Chitty Ninja Kwani has the tools to get the win, but you can't count out Dusko Todorovic. He's a pretty darn good fighter, has some good wins in his background. We'll break the fight down, but I think by the time we're done discussing this fight, you'll agree that Chitty Ninja Kwani is the rightful favorite. Looking at the striking numbers first in these two fighters, Chitty Ninja Kwani is landing 3.9 one per minute, absorbing 1.53. So pretty good volume in his output and a nice striking ratio. As for Dusko Todorovic, landing a little more at 5.8 per minute, but absorbing
dropping about five strikes per minute himself, so stand-up defense is not one of his strong suits. As for takedown offense, Ninja Kwani's averaging zero takedowns for 15 minutes, not a single takedown yet in the UFC. For Dusko, averaging 0.63 takedowns for 15 minutes, so barely even a half a takedown per fight for Dusko Todorovic. As for takedown defense, 78% for Ninja Kwani and 50% for Todorovic. Now looking at the background of these two fighters, Chidi Ninja Kwani was born in Dallas, Texas. His family is from Nigeria. He's a former Muay Thai kickboxer. He had a 12-1 kickboxing record before moving over to mixed martial arts. He began competing in Muay Thai tournaments at the age of 11 years old. He went pro in 2007, so he's been a pro for 15 years. He's currently on a three-fight winning streak, and this will mark his second fight this year. Prior to the UFC, he fought in Bellator, LFA, Legacy FC, and RFA. He has a 5-2 overall record in Bellator. Some of his recent opponents, he fought Mark andre Barriut earlier this year, had a round one TKO finish in 15 seconds. A very impressive straight 1-2 with the lead jab starting it off and then coming through with the right hand finish. It was perfectly timed, perfectly executed. Mark andre Barriut went to the ground and there was a few other strikes in the ground, but it was pretty much over for initial 1-2 punch. He came into that fight as a minus 110 pick him. If you were betting on him, there was a lot of value there. And that was his biggest win so far in his career. His prior fight, Mario Souza, that was on Dana White Contender Series back in 2021. A round three TKO win. He was a plus 100 underdog. He won the fight in very nice fashion. It was a little slow at some points in round one and two, but he got to round three, showed some darn good cardio, very nice knees in the clinch. He lands a really hard body shot knee in the tie clinch against Mario Souza that drops Souza. Eventually leads to him being on top of Souza, getting a ground and pound finish. So overall, very good win. Came in to get us a slight dog and then eventually got his contract from that win, of course. He fought Rafael Carvalho in 2019. Decision loss that was back in Bellator. Now, Carvalho on a bit of a rough streak recently, like one in six or something like that, his last seven fights, but he is a Bellator veteran. He fought John Salter, 2018, round one rear naked choke loss. Salter's also a Bellator veteran. He fought Andre Fialo, a current UFC fighter, 2016. He had a round one KO win over Fialo. That win is obviously aging very well. He fought Max Griffin back in 2015 in RFA. He got the win there by decision, and Griffin, of course, is currently on the UFC roster. Looking back at his entire topology, his two most impressive wins to date are over Mark andre Barriut and Andre Fialo. Now, some things I like about Chidi Bang Bang's game. He's a very active fighter. This will be his second fight this year. He fought once last year, once 2020, and once 2019. He's got pretty good finishing ability. For example, his last three straight wins have all been by finish, and he's got finishes in five of his last seven wins. So he's got an ability to finish. There's no question about that. He will have a six-inch reach advantage in this matchup that's going to play a part on the feet when they're striking. Dusko Todorovic has a decent grappling game, decent ground attack game, nice ground and pound, but predominantly fights on the feet, so the fight will be on the feet most of the time. Chidi should be able to take advantage of that six-inch reach advantage. When they're in the clinch, Chidi has phenomenal knees. He drops Souza in their matchup in Data White Contender Series because of the knees in the clinch. He's a former Muay Thai fighter, so good kicks, good knees. And all of his losses are against pretty good level fighters, guys that are Bellator level or UFC level. So he's not losing against any scrubs. Now my concerns for Chidi Nijuquani, his last three wins were over subpar competition. The combined record of his last three opponents is 43 and 19. Not a terrible record, it's just that these guys were average level fighters. One guy was like about 500 level. So he's fought some okay competition. I mentioned again, Mark andre Barriut was his biggest win and then Fialo back in the day. So he hasn't really been tested, hasn't fought a signature opponent yet in the UFC. Grant that he's just getting started he's just getting his what second third fight in the UFC but still like I said hasn't really fought a top-notch opponent his ground game is still developing we mentioned before former Muay Thai background karate background so he fights on the feet that's his style been a pro for a long time had a lot of Muay Thai experience kickboxing experience before going over to mixed martial arts when you watch him on film looks good in feet that's where he wants to fight so the ground game is a bit of a question mark we're not sure how good or bad he is in the ground but it seems like it's an area of the game where he doesn't really spend too much time this fight it shouldn't be an issue because with Tonerovic Again, he likes to fight in the feet as well. Speaking of Dusko Todorovic, let's take a glance at his profile. He was born in Serbia. 
He went 10-0 as an amateur. He made his pro debut in 2015. He fought in Serbia Battle Championships prior to the UFC. He's the former Serbia Battle Middleweight Champion. He fought on Dana White Contender Series in 2019. He won via decision, but he did get a contract. He won his UFC debut with a round two TKO victory over Daquan Townsend in 2020. He won Performance of the Night once in the UFC. He's currently a college student at Belgrade University, where he's about to finish up a degree in business. Now, looking at some of his most recent opponents, he fought Maki Patolo just last year. Round one TKO victory came in as a minus 170 favorite. It was a nice win coming off back-to-back -back losses, and Patolo basically screwed himself. Patolo went for a guillotine choke, and as he did that, he fell to his back, and that was all she wrote. Dusko took over top position on the ground, landed a ton of ground and pound, showed that he could be very heavy on the ground. He could, he could take top control, land a lot of heavy punches, takes complete control, gets back control, lands a few more punches, and eventually Maki Patala gets called out for TKO. He's not really injured. He's just had enough. He's covering up, and he can't respond. So nice victory again coming back after back-to-back -back losses. Now, the prior fight before that, Gregory Rodriguez, 2021 decision loss. That was not a bad fight from the standpoint that he took a lot of hard punches from Rodriguez. And if you were wondering about his chin after the Soriano debacle where he lost via round one, goes a full three rounds with Gregory Rodriguez. Now, two of the three judges had him losing 30-27 in the scorecard, so it wasn't very close. He more or less got dominated, but again, showed some pretty good durability. It wasn't the worst loss. Gregory Rodriguez is a pretty good fighter. Now, the prior fight, Puna Hale Soriano. If you're wondering about his chin, if you have questions about his chin, this would be the fight you probably would be pointing to. He gets chin checked like three or four times in round one. Maybe the first time he got clipped, he never recovers because from that point on, he gets knocked down or almost falls down or his legs go wobbly a few more times in that first round. Eventually, the fight is called. Just an overall tough day for him at the office. Punahale really took it to him. Hurt him several times in that first round. But coming back off of that loss, going against Gregor Rodriguez, full three rounds, showed maybe he's not so chinny. Now, another prior fight, back in 2018, four years ago, he fought Michelle Pereira. 2018, got a round one TKO win. That was back in Serbia Battle Championships. Pereira, of course, is fighting on this card. Now, some things I like about Dusko Todorovic, he's a very active fighter. He fought three times last year and won 2020, and of course, he's fighting right now in the early part of 2022. He does have nice combinations, and he does let his hands go. So when he's in the pocket with his opponent, he doesn't shy away from contact. He doesn't mind getting punched a few times himself. He lets his hands go, throws some good combinations. He does have KO power. He's got six KO finishes in his 13 total fights, and he's got a solid overall finish rate. Eight of his 11 wins have been by finish, six by KO and two by submission. And on the ground, he's displayed the ability to finish a fight, have good ground pound techniques being heavy on top maintaining position the maki patola fight if you look at that fight you'll see what i'm talking about he's not known as a ground and pound type of guy but could that be a path for him here against chitty Njikwani? get chitty to the ground land some ground and pound strikes get some position control it's just a possibility chitty's not known for his ground game and when you look at dusko todorovic his ground attack is pretty darn good now my concern for dusko todorovic he winds up and throws huge punches and that's got two big issues tied to it one the energy you're taking a lot of energy to wind up and throw these big punches and so that's going to drain your gas tank. Number two, it leaves you way off balance for counter strikes, for getting taken down, kicked, a whole plethora of bad things. He's also a very easy target. He's got a long neck and his head's up a little bit high. Okay, whatever, no big deal. But then his guard's also down very low. He doesn't move his head very much off the center line, has okay footwork, but doesn't like come in at a distance very quickly. And the last thing, the trifecta is when he's trading, when he's throwing, he never brings those hands back up. He doesn't move his head. His head's always available for counters when you watch the soriano fight he gets hit by some very basic punches slow punches that are pretty easy to see coming but since he has no head movement his hands are down low he's easy to get hit if he fights guys who have ko power 
or have high volume and good accuracy, on the feet, he's going to lose those fights. As he moves his way up the ladder with the UFC opponents, he's going to have to shore up his stand-up defense. Otherwise, he's going to get picked apart and eventually get knocked out again. And not to pile on that fight with Soriano, but one more concern I have for that fight is when he does get clipped the first, second, third, I mean, how many times did it happen? But when it happens, he doesn't show good survival skills. He maintains a stand-up boxing approach. He tries to get a takedown or two, doesn't get it. He's trying to trade. His head's up still very high, just not showing good survival skills. When you're in a situation where you've been buzzed, you've got to find a way to the clinch. You've got to find a way to survive. Get your guard up. Protect yourself. He showed none of those skills in that fight against Soriano. Granted, it was his first time getting knocked out or TKO'd finished in any of his mixed martial arts fights, so kind of uncharted territory but didn't like the way that he was trying to survive there, showed sore, poor survivor skills and low fighter IQ. All right, the fights we watched every down this film, we watched Ninja Kwani versus Baryu, Ninja Kwani versus Sosa. We watched Todorovic versus Rodriguez, Todorovic versus Petola, and Todorovic versus Soriano. To watch those five fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. You'll see those five links down below to those five corresponding fights. All right, my final few thoughts on these two fighters. For Chitty Ninja Kwani, I believe he has a slight experience advantage. Dusko Todorovic has fought some good fighters, had the Serbian Battle Championships title himself at one point, but at 13 total fights compared to 28 for Chitty Ninja Kwani, he simply has less fighting experience in the cage. Not to mention Chitty Ninja Kwani also has the fighting experience in Muay Thai. And for those reasons, I get the experience advantage to Chitty Ninja Kwani. As for fighter IQ, you know, very similar. I see areas of Chitty Ninja Kwani's game that need improvement, specifically grappling. Not sure about his cardio either, late in fight. As for Dusko Todorovic, I'm not sure about the defense, and so they both leave me with question marks about their fighter IQ. I'm going to give them the same rating. As for cardio, both guys show things at times that suggest that they're very fatigued or they're suffering from kind of some kind of a cardio dump. In the case of Chidi Njikwani, maybe because he's too explosive at times, he opens it up, goes full throttle, then has to reel it back in, kind of get a second win, third win, and then comes back better and stronger at the end, but has moments in the fight where he slows down. For Dusko, it's similar. The high energy strikes, when he starts missing those strikes, or he gets caught himself and gets a little bit clipped, that lean body starts to look very clumsy, very Gumby-like. That mixed in with a little bit of fatigue, and he looks like he has some cardio issues. If this fight does go to decision, I would imagine the fighter that has the better cardio probably wins an important round three, maybe a decisive round three. And if I had to guess who has better cardio at that point, I think it's Chitty Ninja Kwani, only because Dusko, when the fight gets close, will start dipping more and more into the wheelhouse of big, explosive, spinning back fists, big overhand looping shots, and so that will cause more of a cardio dump. It would not bode well for him. He tends to throw a lot of looping shots as it is. It's not very technical down the pipe. As he fatigues, he does even more of that. And so I think for that reason, the cardio will probably be in the slight advantage there of Chitty Ninja Kwani. They both have some finishing ability. Now, they've had some moments recently where they've got a decision, of course, but they both have power in their hands. They both have the ability to finish an opponent in different situations on the ground and on the feet. And so I give them both about the same rating when it comes to finishing. They both fight well on the feet. Striking is an advantage for both fighters. I don't see either one of these guys as being better at striking. Power-wise, very similar combinations are both there. If anything, Chitty maybe throws a more technical, precise strike. His strikes are more down the pipe, whereas with Dusko Todorovic, it's more of a looping action. He's looking for more of a haymaker type of shot, more of hooks, whereas Chitty, it's more straight than the pipe, a little more technical. And so yeah, from a striking standpoint, these guys are very similar. They're different, 
but similar. Same, same, but different. As for grappling, I give the edge to Dusko Todorovic. I like what he did in the Maki Patola fight. It just shows that he's got that ability. For Chitty, we haven't really seen him grapple. He doesn't have a wrestling background or a Sambo background. This guy's a former kickboxer, stand-up striker, and that's why he has the advantage in some areas of this fight. When it comes to grappling, I gotta give the edge there to the Serbian fighter. As for who's got more heart, who wants it more? I thought Dusko showed a lot of heart in that fight against Soriano. He got knocked down, I mean, several times, probably like two, three times in that first round. He was not quitting. He was still trying to fight. He was trying to get back in there. I give him respect. He's got some heart. Ashford Njikwani, young in the UFC game, but still has 28 total mixed martial arts fights, has about 17 kickboxing fights. The guy's been doing it for a while, so I have no reason to question his heart either. I think this fight, if it goes a distance, both guys will put their heart on the line. We'll do whatever it takes to win. So from that standpoint, I'm going to give these guys about an equal rating when it comes to the heart. There's three possible props you might want to consider for this fight. The fight going the distance is plus 145. I like that spot. There are ways the fight can end early. Dusko has finishing power, and so does Chitty. We've talked about it. But man, they're so evenly matched. We saw Dusko go the full distance against Gregor Rodriguez. Could I see something like that happening again? Yeah, so at plus 145, I like the fight going the distance. Chitty Ninja Kwani to win by TKO is plus 155. So if you think Dusko may be a little chinny, may leave his chin open, which he's going to do, may get countered a few times, which is going to happen, he may get in exchanges where he just trades and leaves himself wide open. Could Chitty catch him, TKO him? Do what Soriano did? Maybe. Now imagine this. He catches him one time. He kind of shakes Dusko, and Dusko does a repeat of his other mistake. He doesn't show good survival skills and gets his bell rung a second or a third time and loses by TKO at plus 155. I like that spot. That's obviously contrary to the fight going the distance, but if the fight were to end early, I would see it by cheating Jaquani getting a TKO. Last but not least, if you like Dusko Todorovic, I don't know that he finishes cheating Jaquani. Ninjikwani has been very durable over the course of his career. Plus 4 to 35 for Dusko Todorovic to win by decision. That's an awesome spot. Now he's plus 160 on the money line straight up. Not a bad spot, but it's most likely by decision. And I see it going off like this. If he goes in there and starts taking a wrestling approach, takes down Chitty Ninjikwani to the ground for just two of the three rounds. That's all it takes. Gets top control, a little bit of laying and praying, very boring. That's his path to victory. And at plus 435 by decision win, not a terrible spot. That's the breakdown, guys. Thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Give us some feedback. What do you think? Do you like Dusko Todorovic? Am I underestimating him a little bit? Good luck with this one, guys, if you're betting on it. Next up, we have a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between two South American fighters, Santiago Ponzinibbio from Argentina and Michelle Pereira from Brazil. Michelle Pereira goes by Demolador. He's 27-11-0 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. A slight favor here on the money line at minus 120. He hails out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil specifically. 28 years old, 6 foot 1 in height with a 73 inch reach. He's out of Scorpion Fighting Systems. As for Santiago Pontonibio, who goes by the Argentine Dagger, he's 28 and 5 overall, 3 and 2 in his last 5 fights. A slight dog here, plus 100 on the money line. He hails out of La Plata, Argentina, 35 years old, 6 foot in height with a 73 inch reach. He trains out of American top team. So both guys are training at a very good gyms. Look at the public votes on Tapology. Pereira is the favorite, getting 67% of the votes, only 33% coming in for Pontonibio. I do agree. I like Michelle Pereira win the fight but this fight is very close there's path to victories for both fighters but i am going to side with michelle Pereira to win the fight by decision we'll go over the breakdown go over the details on both fighters and try to convince you that michelle Pereira is the right side to be on now looking at the striking numbers in these two fighters santiago's landing 4.79 per minute absorbing 4.51 so good output good volume but not the best stand-up defense which we'll talk more about as for michelle Pereira, landing 4.71 per minute so almost the same output almost the same level of volume as santiago but absorbing 3.24 a little better stand-up defense now for takedown offense ponce landing 
0.51 per 15 minutes, whereas Michelle Pereira is leading 1.84 takedowns per 15 minutes. As for takedown defense, 100% for Michelle Pereira and 60% for Ponsonibio. If there's a takedown, a trip, a judo throw type of sweep by Michelle Pereira, you can see that once or twice in the fight, but I only expect to see it every single round. He likes to fight in the feet, very explosive, very dynamic, but uh, he can get some takedowns, averaging just about two takedowns per 15 minutes. Now, looking at the profile of these two fighters, let's talk about Santiago Ponsonibio first. He was born in Argentina to Italian parents, which is why he's got that Italian Greek look. He began kickboxing at the age of 13 years old. Now, due to a lack of gyms in his home country of Argentina, he actually moved as a late teenager to Brazil, where he lived on the beach for months. He did odd jobs to make ends meet, and he found a few gyms locally to train at to get his started to mixed martial arts. He's got a black belt in BJJ. He went pro in 2008. He's been a pro for 14 years. He went 4-0 in the Ultimate Fighter Brazil Season 2 back in 2013. He signed with the UFC in 2013. He has a 10-4 overall record in the UFC, and at one point had a seven-fight winning streak in the UFC. He's the number 14-ranked UFC welterweight. While in the UFC, he's earned performance of the night and fight of the night twice. Now, some of his recent opponents, he fought Jeff Neal last year, had a split decision loss. He came in as a minus-120 favorite. Prior to that, he fought Miguel Baeza, won that fight by decision. He came into that fight as a plus-145 underdog. In the Baeza fight, he got off to a slow start. He drops round one and then shows the veteran savvy, comes back to take over round two and round three. And if you know Miguel Baeza, doesn't have the best cardio. He started to slow down that fight, whereas Santiago Pantanibio had plenty enough cardio to extend the fight, look really good at the end, had more volume. Ultimately, he simply wanted it more than Baeza and showed that veteran savvy. He fought Jing Liang Li in 2020, round one KO loss. That was a tough one. It's just one fight. Over the course of his career, Santiago's had a pretty good chin. But in that fight early round one, he just gets caught. He gets caught in an exchange, gets KO'd very early in round one. He was a minus 335 favorite coming into that fight. So big favorite and ends up losing in round one by KO. He has a win over Mike Perry by decision, 2017. He also beat Sean Strickland back in the day, 2015 decision win. That was his third UFC fight. Now, some things I like about Santiago Ponzinibbio. He's very durable. He's only been finished twice in his 33 total mixed martial arts fights, and he's willing to take a few punches to land a few punches, so he's got a decent chin. He has solid cardio and very good output. As an older fighter, usually guys at this age start to slow down. Not with him. He's got good cardio, good pace, and in the fight against Baez, it was a good example where he had the better cardio than the younger fighter. He likes to use forward pressure to cut off the cage. That'll be a good mix for this fight because he'll be the one going forward. Michelle Pereira will be the one circling. Sometimes the forward pressure is enough to get the scorecards on your favorite for a close round. So in that standpoint, I do like the fact he comes forward and cuts the cage off. He's a veteran in the sport, 35 years old, fought a lot of fights, about 33 to be exact but also nine years of pro experience in the UFC alone. If it's a close fight, you like the fact that he's got the experience advantage here over a younger Michelle Pereira. Now, my concerns with Santiago, he's displayed a lack of finishing ability in recent fights. He's coming off of back-to-back -back decision wins. He has three finishes in his last eight total fights, and he hasn't had a finish in over four years. He's got finishes in his background. He's got finishing ability, but lately, not sure if it's an age issue, a quality of opponent, whatever the case may be, he's going to decision a lot recently. He did a really poor job defending lower leg kicks against Baeza. In that fight, Miguel Baeza starts tearing up his leg early in the fight. Now, he overcomes it, switches stances, does the best he can to guard his leg. The reality is against a fighter who attacks that lower leg could be an issue for Pontanibio. Now, this is just my interpretation of his recent fights. It looks to me as if he's lost a step. He's not super slow, doesn't have bad cardio, doesn't have like a bunch of concussions. I'm not saying that. It just appears at this point in his career at 35, he looks a little bit slower. And round two and round three, when he gets a little more fatigued, not bad cardio, just gets fatigued. It seems to be like he's moving at a gear slower than his opponent. When he fights a younger fighter, a fighter who's got a lot of quickness and speed, agility, it tends to be a little bit of a problem for him. So I'm just noticing that recently again. I'm not sure if it's an age issue. I'm not sure if it's a wear and tear in those tires type of issue. A lot of fights, a lot of fights under his belt. So just noticing recently he's kind of slowed down a little bit. 
And last, he's got very poor striking defense. Now back to his striking numbers, absorbing 4.51 per minute, almost five strikes per minute. So what that tells you is his stand-up defense is not very good. And that's because of a few factors. One, head movement's not great. It's running the center line. Number two, when he does exchange with his opponent, his head still, his arms do not come back up. His guard's never really high anyway. As he fatigues, the hands come down. As he fatigues, his movement slows down, and he's already losing a step. So the striking defense when he's standing up is a bit of an issue against a guy like Michelle Pereira, who's very quick, gets in and out of the range, will strike from a distance, come in close, has a big speed advantage in this fight. I think what's going to happen here is that striking defense will be exposed. He'll end up taking a lot more shots than he should. And remember, he doesn't mind trading to come into the pocket. But again, if you're trading to come into the pocket, land some strikes, and you have a quickness disadvantage, and your guard's not very good, it lines up to be where he's at. He has almost a negative striking ratio. As for the Brazilian Michel Pereira, he's born and raised in Brazil. He began karate at the age of 12 years old, started BJJ at 16. He's a black belt in karate and BJJ. He's been a pro for 11 years. He's the former Serbian battle welterweight champion. He signed with the UFC 2019. He has a 5-2 overall record in the UFC. He's earned fight of the night once and performance of the night once in the UFC. His most notable opponents, he's coming off of a win against Andre Fialo earlier this year by decision. He was a minus 280 favorite in that fight. Fialo was a late replacement for that fight, but it was a good overall fight. They went toe-to-toe -to -toe for three full rounds, and you saw the veteran savvy of Michelle Pereira getting into the pocket, landing a few punches, get out of the pocket. With a guy like Fialo, who has more inherent knockout power than Michelle Pereira, Michelle Pereira went all three rounds, avoided the danger, landed a few strikes, was dancing most of the time, did a few wild kicks and spinning kicks and whatever else, but basically kept it within his range. He's the kind of fighter where he could be annoying to fight against, and in that fight, Andre Fiala, who I believe is a better prospect, could not simply close the range and get to Michelle Pereira. So in that fight, you see the classic Michelle Pereira moving in out of range, avoiding the dangerous shots, and getting the win on the scorecards. His prior fight, Nico Price, 2021 decision win, almost a copycat performance as it was against Andre Fialo. Nico Price is a dog. He's a tough dude, not easy to finish, throws with power, has some finishes in his background. He could not close the distance. Michelle Pereira put on a clinic, working at range, karate style, capoeira style, however you want to call it. But Michelle Pereira is never a standing target. His cardio is pretty good. He will slow down at times. He'll have a little cardio dump at times. But for those first two rounds, he's almost impossible to hit. He's always moving. He's never a solid target. His hands are over here. Legs are over here. And so those two fights, Nico Price and Andre Fialo, he does what he does. He gets the win in the scorecards. Prior fight, Chaos Williams, another example. Now, Chaos Williams is a knockout artist. A lot of power in his hands. He wins against Chaos Williams 2020 by decision. Came as a plus 100 underdog. He repeats the same thing he did against Fialo and Price. A smart fight style. Stays at distance. Stays away from the danger. Now, he does drop round three. Had a bit of a cardio dump in round three, but he did not get hurt. He's away from the knockout power of Chaos Williams and gets another win. He does have a loss against Tristan Colley. That was 2019 by decision. He was a minus 450 favorite in that fight. He fought Dusko Todorovic back in his Serbian battle promotion 2018. Round one KO loss. Got finished by Dusko. Now, some things I like about Michelle Pereira. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He does avoid danger, as we talked about. That's one of his cornerstones to his fighting style. It's how does he get to the pocket, land a few strikes, and then get out of there. He's not going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a power guy if he does he'll get knocked out. Knockout power is not really his thing, but he knows how to avoid danger. He has excellent footwork, which is what helps him to avoid the danger, and pretty good cardio. So for all three rounds, he's circling, circling, moving left to right. It's annoying for the opponent. At some point, some guys are like, could you just stay still and fight with me, dude? But that's part of his game plan. That's part of his defense. His lateral movement is not only a way to avoid the shots coming from his opponent, it's a way to also set up his shots. He throws strikes from weird angles. So when you're fighting this guy, he's never still. He's always fucking moving. You're trying to hit him, he's moving. And then he hits you from odd angles. It's all set up by really good footwork and good lateral movement. He has this move where he goes against the cage and launches himself off the cage with his back foot like into a Superman punch. He'll do it like three or four times a fight. It's a cool punch. He does some other exciting things. If he lands any one of those cool dynamic strikes of any kind, that could be enough to just simply win a round. 
It is a little bit weird sometimes. It's a little bit quirky. It's sometimes it's just a waste of energy. But if he lands one of those strikes, a Superman punch off the cage or something, or some Capoeira kick, it's always an opportunity to possibly get around on the scorecards. Now, my concerns for Michelle Pereira. This one's very specific, so hear me out. Good footwork, good lateral movement, moving side to side. He tends to avoid big encounters with his opponent. If it's a close fight, what if that's enough for a judge to say, you know what? He's avoiding contact. He's avoiding the, the skirmishes. He's not trying to get in there and get into a battle. And what if that judge says, you know what? The other opponent's moving forward like someone like Ponzinibbio would do and just drop that round because of that. So that fighting style of always avoiding the big skirmishes and always avoiding the big trades, just hitting and moving, hitting and moving. And sometimes almost like you're running. There's a small cage, mind you. So it looks like he's really running in this cage. Could that be an issue to scorecards? I just wonder. He can throw a wild kick at times to the point where he ends up on the canvas. It's very common for him to throw a wild kick, fall down, and up on his back. Against Ponzinibbio, who's not a big ground game guy anyway, averaging just about half a takedown for 15 minutes, could he just jump on top of him, get some ground control? Yes. In summary, he finds a way to get on the ground by himself, by tripping, falling, and slipping from these wild kicks. And last but not least, he lacks finishing ability lately. His last three wins were all by decision. Now, prior to those three fights, his last seven wins before that were all by finish. So he's got some finishing ability, but for some reason recently, the last few years, he has not been much of a finisher. And though his volume is very good and his output's exciting, a lot of rangy wild kicks and punches and Superman punches off the cage and whatnot, I don't think he sits down much in his punches, so he doesn't have a lot of punching power. It looks nice, it's exciting, good volume, but he doesn't really sit down and get his hips into it and really throw it with a lot of power. And so because of that, I believe it's also affecting his finishing ability at this point in his career. The fights we watched to bring on this film, we watched Ponzinibbio versus Neil, Ponzinibbio versus Baeza, and Ponzinibbio versus Lee. We also watched Pereira versus Fialo and Pierre versus Price. To watch those five fights, if you just look down below here on YouTube, you'll see those five links as part of our free video library to check those fights out at your convenience. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, very similar. You have 33 fights for Santiago, 37 total fights for Michelle Pereira. Both guys have a ton of octagon experience. They've fought some pretty good opponents, so experience-wise, about the same. For fighter IQ, again, very similar. Good, smart fighters. They know what they're good at. They know what they're not good at. They're not in the UFC all this time without having good fighter skills and good fighter IQ. Cardio, I give the edge to Michelle Pereira, and here's my thinking again. I think Santiago Ponzinibbio, who has a good gas tank historically, Good overall fighter is just losing a step. And I think some of that's just simply good old fashioned age, father time. Michelle Pereira looks about the same age, but the fact is he's tw he's seven years younger. He's seven years younger than Ponzinibbio in this fight. They both have fought about the same amount of fights, but age-wise, biologically, Ponzinibbio is simply just much older. And I think he's slowing down. So I think the cardio issue will show up at some point in round three where Santiago will slow down a little bit. And I think Michelle Pereira will be a little fresher. They both lack finishing ability at this point in the career. We talked about that already. Who's the better striker? I think Ponzinibbio has good punching power has more power in his hands than Michelle Pereira, but more volume from Pereira, better stand-up defense. And so when it comes to striking, kickboxing, boxing, there's a slight advantage there for Michelle Pereira. As for grappling, neither guy's much of a grappler, but I give the edge to Michelle Pereira because he has more takedowns in his arsenal, has a little better BJJ. And for Santiago Ponzinibbio, that's just not a part of his game. He's more one-dimensional that way. He's a stand-up fighter, kicking, punching. That's part of his arsenal, not really the ground game. And last but not least, who has more heart? Both guys are good fighters. They're both at a point in their career where they've been tested before. I think Michelle Pereira, if he's pushed into a corner, will try to avoid the pressure and try to skirt away. For Santiago Ponzinibbio, I think if he's under pressure, we'll try to fight his way out of it. So if I had to give a slight edge to who has the more heart, who has more passion, who has more cojones, as we like to say, maybe Santiago Ponzinibbio. But look, I'm not sleeping on Michelle Pereira to win the fight. I think he does win the fight. He does enough over the course of three rounds to win the scorecards. No finish here. The two props I like a lot for this fight are the fight going the distance and Pereira by decision. I don't have numbers on those props just yet, but those are two props that I would consider. Look, I like Santiago Ponzinibbio. I give him a chance to win this fight. The money line is very accurate. At plus 100, there's some value there. I just think Michelle Pereira's volume over two of the three rounds 
will be just enough to get the win on the scorecards. Now, who can get a finish here? Santiago by a knockout, maybe, and then Michelle Pereira by submission, but just seems to me like the fight is very evenly matched to South American fighters. The younger fighter here probably has a little more volume, a little more in the gas tank in round three, will edge out a close decision, probably even maybe even a split decision. It's going to be close to the scorecards. Once again, we like Michelle Pereira at minus 120 to win the fight. We like him so much we're going to put a unit on him to win straight up, and we'll probably parlay him at least in one or two small parlays, nothing too crazy. That's the breakdown again, guys. Thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe, and we're on to the next video. Here we go. The main event for UFC 55 is going to feature a women's bout in the Bantamweight division, 135 pounds, between the American fighter Holly Holm and the Brazilian Ketlin Vieira. Vieira goes by Phenomena, which means Phenomenon in English. She's 12-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. She's 30 years old, 5'8", and 168-inch reach. She's out of Nova União Manios. As for Holly Holm, goes by the preacher's daughter, and yes, her father is a preacher. She's 14-5 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. She hails out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. 40 years old in seven months. She's getting up there. 5'8", highway 69-inch reach, so one-inch reach advantage there for Holly Holm and same height as her opponent. She trains out of Jackson Wink MMA. As for the numbers coming in on Tapology, Holm is the big favorite, getting 84% of the votes, only 16% coming in for Vieira. I do agree with the public. I like Holly Holm to win the fight. She has several different advantages here. Her only disadvantage is the age. As we break this fight down, we'll try to convince you that Holly Holm is the rightful favorite. Looking at the striking numbers in these two fighters, Holly Holm's averaging 3.16 per minute, absorbing 2.80. Decent volume and a positive ratio. As for Caitlin Vieira, she's averaging 3.07, but absorbing 4.07. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see that the striking defensive numbers are in red because she has a negative striking ratio. As for takedown offense, Holmes averaging 0.81 per 15 minutes, so not much of a takedown artist. For Caitlin Vieira, a little busier for takedowns, averaging 1.71 per 15 minutes. For takedown defense, Holly Holmes has 76% and 90% for Caitlin Vieira. Looking at the background of these two fighters, Holly Holm is primarily of Irish descent. She grew up playing several sports, including gymnastics, soccer, and swimming. After high school, she studied for one year at the University of New Mexico. She began kickboxing at the age of 16 years old. She has countless world titles in kickboxing and boxing. Her combined record between those two sports is 60 and 3 overall. Yeah, a ton of experience. If you add her MMA record, her entire record combined for all combat sports is 74 and 8 overall. She fought in Bellator and Legacy FC before the UFC. She signed with the UFC 2015. She has a 7-5 overall record in the UFC. She's the former UFC Bantamweight champion. And she's the only fighter in UFC history to hold a current UFC title and a world title in kickboxing or boxing at the same time. And if you don't know, her claim to fame was her knockout over Ronda Rousey back in UFC 193, which was being held in Australia. It was a second round KO win. It was the first loss of Ronda Rousey's career. Like 56,000 people in attendance. She was a plus 830 underdog. So one of the biggest upsets in mixed martial arts sports history. Yeah, just an amazing moment. Of course, Ronda Rousey was at her pinnacle at that time. She's currently ranked the number two bantamweight in UFC, and she's on a two-fight winning streak. Her most notable opponents, her last fight, she fought Irene Aldana two years ago, got the win by decision. She came into that fight as a minus-130 favorite. Her prior fight, Raquel Pennington, also 2020, won that fight by decision. She also beat Raquel Pennington back in the day, 2015, also by decision. She fought Amanda Nunes three years ago, 2019, had a round one KO loss. She came into that fight as a plus-300 underdog, and she got folded in round one. Holly Holmes is an amazing striker, but at the same time, her power is not really what she's known for. Her kicking power, yes. Her punching power, not so much. And Amanda Nunes is known for her punching power, and it was very clear in that fight. She fought Chris Cyborg, 2017, lost that fight by decision, came to that fight as a plus 250 underdog. 
She also lost to Valentina Shevchenko back in 2016. She came in as a minus 160 favorite into that fight. Interesting how things have changed. Valentina Shevchenko obviously now is the champion. She lost to Misha Tate 2016, a round five submission loss in a very grueling close fight where she was winning most of the time, but Misha Tate came back at the end. She was a minus 320 favorite in that fight, so a bit of a tough loss if you were betting on her in that fight. And then, of course, Ronda Rousey, 2015, KO win, the first loss of Rousey's career. She was a plus 830 underdog. Now, some things to like about Holly Holm. Number one, she tends to only lose against good fighters. You're talking about Misha Tate, Shevchenko, Chris Cyborg, Amanda Nunes, and then the other one was against Jermaine Randomy. Now, Jermaine Randomy, for what it's worth, is 7-2 overall in the UFC. She went a decision against Nunes. She has a win over Pennington and Ladd, and then she also had a win over Juliana Pena, who's currently the champion. Other than that, it's Nunes, Cyborg, Shevchenko, and Tate, all former or current champions in the UFC. So the bottom line is, she loses against very high-level competition, and that's the question I ask myself. Is Caitlin Vieira of that same elk? Is she in that same category? She fights out of a southpaw stance. She has amazing striking ability with her hands and her feet. She's high volume. She can kick with power. She can kick to the body, to the head. She's very, very flexible, and she strikes in combination. She's always in tremendous shape. Now, she's 40 years old. Father Time will catch up with her at some point, but she comes into her fights in tremendous shape. Great cardio, goes the full distance. She's pacing like a caged lion before the fight even starts. She employs a wonderful jab, which she keeps very busy. Behind that jab can come punches or kicks, and everything works off of that jab. Along with the great cardio and the great energy level is the amazing footwork. She works in and out of range, circles her opponent. She's never a standing target. And last but not least, the kicking power. She can knock out any of her opponents if she lands the right head kick. Of course, it happened to Randa Rousey. It's happened to some of her other opponents. With the right head kick, she could take out Caitlin Vieira with just one shot. Now, my concerns for Holmes. Number one, her finishing ability has not been so great recently. She hasn't had a finish in about five years. Her last three wins have all been by decision. So for some reason recently, she hasn't been able to finish her opponents. She's also coming off of a two-year layoff, and she's about to be 41 years old soon. 41 years old is not the prime age in this division. That's the bottom line. Now, she can maybe push back for the time because she works so hard. Her cardio is amazing. Tons of experience. Been a pro for a long time. But the reality is we may start seeing a slowdown here. There may be an issue with cardio. Maybe her chin. Maybe all of the above. At 41 years old, we're going to start seeing some slowing down here in some part of her fights. And also, she's coming off of a two-year layoff. And last but not least, she can get chin checked at times. She tends to keep her chin up pretty high. Her head's in the center line, especially when she's exchanging with her opponent. That's the one area of her game that has to be a little bit of a concern here. Caitlin Vieira has heavy hands. Not amazing KO power. But she does punch with some power. And if home is not careful, keeps her chin up there, is available to get hit. I can see her getting chin checked and she tends to go down pretty quickly once she gets hurt. Now looking at Caitlin Vieira, she was born and raised in Brazil. She began BJJ at the age of 12 years old. She went to college for law school for a brief period of time before turning her attention back to mixed martial arts. She has a black belt in judo and jiu-jitsu. She went pro in 2014, so she's been a pro for eight years. She signed with the UFC in 2016 and she has a 6-2 overall record in the UFC. Her last fight was against Misha Tate just last year. She won by decision. She came into that fight as a minus 110 pick'em. It was a five-round fight, mind you. Of course, Misha Tate is the former UFC champion. She's coming back out of retirement, and she looked pretty good in that fight. But this is definitely Misha Tate 2.0. It's not prime Misha Tate. It's not Misha Tate in her younger years where she can go to a full five rounds, have a battle, get a late submission. In that fight, she got pieced up, especially late fourth round, fifth round. Vieira was able to piece her up and had her bleeding quite a bit. But it should be noted, Vieira gets off to a good start. She gets round one and two. I think every single judge had her winning round one and two. It's round three and four that most of the judges had her losing. Now she comes back to win round five, gets some position control. Again, lands some hard punches at Misha Tate and cuts her in round five. But it was not the best performance. And quite frankly, it suggests to me that a better opponent in Holly Holm will be too much for Caitlin Vieira. She barely gets that win. She wins ultimately three rounds to two against 
a very old veteran. She should have won that fight clearly. Instead, she let that fight get very close, and at times, she was losing the fight. Now, she does hit Misha Tate with some hard punches, and Tate has a good chin, so she doesn't go down. But on the flip side, at times, she doesn't fight the right fight, and she gets beat, and then she loses clinch control. So what I took from that fight was that she can beat an old Misha Tate, Misha Tate 2.0, now, can she beat an older, aging Holly Holm? I mean, we're going to find out here soon, but I just don't think that she showed enough in that fight for me to feel confident about her coming into this fight. Her prior fight, Yana Kunitskaya, 2021 decision loss. She went to that fight as a minus 275 favorite, so she was a pretty big favorite, and she lost the fight. Now, this fight right here has bad fighter IQ written all over it. She comes into the fight as a favorite, wins round one on most of the scorecards. Actually, one judge gives round one to Kunitskaya, but two of the judges give her round one. She got a takedown pretty early in round one, got top control, but didn't really do much. A crazy stat in this fight is I think she only landed 16 significant strikes in the entire fight. Yes, 16 total strikes for Vieira in this fight. It was a very weird performance. Round three, she had almost the entire round position control, the entire round, and she lost that round and off the judges' scorecards because she threw not a single punch in round three, nothing. She had back control, she had top control, and just displayed some of the lowest fighter IQ I've ever seen where she actually loses round three because even though she has position control, she throws not a single punch, at least Kunitsky is throwing things. It was an awkward fight, a fight that she probably could have won and should have won, but she lost. And as a minus 275 favorite, it was very concerning to see her lose a fight like that where she should have won. In round two, Caitlin Vieira looked a little bit tired. She did come into that fight overweight. Not sure if there was an issue with her camp or her cardio, but she looked tired in round two. She lost position control, was on the ground most of the time. Yana Kudinskaya easily wins round two. Round three, Vieira gets position control. She has the back control, but she still loses the round because she's not doing anything with it. So a very odd fight overall. And to me, a fight that suggests that Caitlin Vieira still has a lot to learn. That fight was just last year, not too long ago. Her prior fight, Sajara Eubanks, 2020 decision win. She came into that fight as a minus 220 favorite. It was a very close first round, but she got a key takedown at the end of round one. She gets more takedowns throughout the fight, gets position control, and look, Sajara Eubanks has a tendency to do that, to lose fights that she probably should do better in. But Vieira goes to the ground game, commits to it, gets position control. She seems to be the bigger fighter in that fight and had good cardio. And Sajara Eubanks slowed down, looked like she didn't want it, and so she gets a nice decision win over Eubanks, who's a pretty good fighter. 2019, round one KO loss to Irene Eldana. She was a minus 230 favorite in that fight, and she lost loss in round one via KO. Now, mind you, Irene Aldana is not known for her KO power. That's another red flag on her topology. And two more fights to mention. Kat Zingano, 2018 split decision win. And then 2017 round two triangle choke submission win over Sarah McMahon. Now, some things to like about Caitlin Vieira's game. She's got very good length. Nice long jab. Tall fighter. Works well behind her jab. She throws some looping punches at times and some hooks, but most of it's right down the pipe. Very good clean technique in her boxing. She also throws nice combinations. When she's working her combinations on the feet and she's busy, she looks good. It's in the ground situations where she doesn't do much. Like, doesn't throw anything at all. She's not known for having knockout power, but it's my opinion that her right hand, when it follows behind the jab, has a lot of power behind it. If she snaps that jab in the right situation, she could definitely hurt her opponent. Now, my concerns for Vieira, she lacks finishing ability. We just talked about it, right? Five of her last six wins have been via decision. She has nice striking skills, but something about it suggests that there's a lack of power. It looks powerful at times. You know those fighters where it's like, they look like they're hitting someone hard, but for some reason they're not actually hitting them hard. So she has that where it looks like it's coming out pretty hard. It lands pretty hard and crisp. It's either she has the power and the punches she's landing are against fighters that have good chins, or maybe she just lacks finishing power. And she has limited to no kicking at all. So I'm talking about like no kicks. Good jiu-jitsu, decent on the ground, but no kicks. She doesn't have bad cardio. She doesn't have a bad gas tank. This is a five-round fight, though, and I've seen her in three-round fights slow down in round two and three. Will she slow down in round four and five of this fight? I mean, all fighters do a little bit. But Holly Holm, who has a great gas tank, known for her cardio, could she have more output in round four or five and win the championship rounds because Caitlin Vieira slows down a little bit? I can see it happening. 
It's happened to Kaylin Vieira before. She's known for having a decent ground attack, you know, averaging just about two takedowns for 15 minutes, but it comes and goes. There's times in her fights where she doesn't go for the ground game at all, but when she's not attacking the ground game, she becomes extremely one-dimensional. Not only does she like to stand up and fight, it's only with her hands. Again, no kicking game. So she's one-dimensional in several ways. One, in that she wants to stand on her feet and fight, but two, there's no kicking game. So it's just literally just hands. It's just boxing at some point, and she stands up very tall, and the last little detail, when she fought Misha Tate, when she let her hands go in that fight, she looked good. But you could hear the commentators saying at times, like, why aren't you letting your hands go, Vera? Like, why are you waiting? Why is there low volume situations with you? Why do you go through moments where you're not throwing your hands? Is it fatigue? Again, I don't know. Is it fighter IQ? But when she lets her hands go and she just boxes and lets it all happen naturally, she's fluid. She's nice. It's smooth. Good technique. But she has an issue at times, like a fighter IQ issue, knowing when to turn it on and when to let her hands go. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Home vs. Aldana, Home vs. Pennington, and Home vs. Nunez. We also watched Vieira vs. Tate, Vieira vs. Kunitskaya, and Vieira vs. Eubanks. To watch those six fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. In our description, you're going to see those six links available for those six fights. My final thoughts on these two fighters, experience-wise and fighter IQ-wise, a big edge to Holly Holm for the reasons we've talked about. For cardio, again, I give it edge to Holly Holm. She is the older fighter by 10 years. Of course, we recognize that, but she's in phenomenal shape. Caitlin Vieira is a bigger fighter, tends to be a thicker, carries a little more natural weight, I believe, where Holly Holmes is very lean, tremendous shape, very good cardio. I believe round four and five, if the fight is close, we're going to see the cardio edge there for Holly Holm, have more volume and win those championship rounds. For finishing ability, neither fighter has been doing a lot of finishing recently, so I give them about an equal grade in finishing. For striking, definitely an edge for Holly Holm. Not only is she a better striker with more volume, she uses all four limbs. She uses her legs and her hands. Caitlin Vieira is strictly a stand-up boxer. For grappling, Caitlin Vieira should be the better grappler. She should have some better opportunities on the ground. She should look for some takedowns. So I'm going to give her a small, slight edge there. But Holly Holm is formidable. She'll do the best she can to defend those takedowns. Again, about 76 to 78% takedown defense. That will be on display. And not to beat a dead horse, but round four and round five, where I think Caitlin Vieira starts to slow down, the takedown offense from Vieira will be non-existent. And last but not least, who has more heart? I'm giving the edge to Holly Holm because she's a former champion. She's been around for a long time. She's four years old. She looks great for her age. Wonderful fighter. Great legacy. A legend in sport. As for Caitlin Vieira, at 30 years old, we just don't know enough about her. So so I'm going to give it to the veteran here. I think Holly Holm has her in several categories, experience-wise, IQ-wise, cardio, striking. She's got her in several areas. The fight probably still goes to decision. I like that prop. And if you're looking at for either fighter prop, it's by decision. Either Holly Holm by decision or Vieira by decision. I don't think either fighter gets a finish here. It's going to go five full rounds. It's going to be a good, tough fight. Should be some good moments, some good striking moments. The question would be, can Holly Holm pull the magic out of her hat and go ahead and get a nice head kick and knock out Vieira? It's happened before. Could we see it happen again? It opened at minus 200-ish in the money line. Now it's around minus 250 probably explodes to minus 350 ish get this pick in early if you want to secure this because the main line's getting a little out of control but i like holly home quite a bit to win this fight in the main event probably goes decision i'm going to have her in some individual bets and also some parlay pieces that's the breakdown again guys thanks for joining us please like and subscribe all right ladies and gentlemen just a quick summary of our picks to win starting from the top we like holly home michelle Pereira, chidi ninjaquani Tabitha Ritchie, Jung Young Park, Joseph Holmes, Joel Nameda, Omar Morales, Jonathan Martinez, Felipe Colares, and Elise Reed. The picks that we like the most, the ones we have the most confidence in, on the main card, we like Holly Holm and Tabitha Ritchie. On the prelim card, we like Joseph Holmes. Those are the three spots we feel the most comfortable in. A few dogs to keep in mind that might be live in this card, Santiago Pantanibio and Pollyanna Viana on the main card. On the prelim card, Parker Porter, Chase Hooper, and Sam Hughes. That's our breakdown, guys. Thank you so much for coming by the channel. We appreciate your support. We can't do this without you. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And we hope you enjoy the card. Have some fun. Crack open a beer. Hopefully the people you're rooting for win. If you're betting, best of luck on your bets. And we'll see you guys soon.